Hi everybody, uh, welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle. Uh, we've got a new microphone tonight, and uh, and um, it's getting good reviews in the uh, comment section. It's very strange for me because normally that thing is hanging on a uh, thing, you know, one of those you know things. But now it's on the desktop here, and I feel like I'm not talking to anybody. But apparently it sounds good, so hopefully it does. We certainly have been trying uh, to improve the sound here and. Um, Turning off the drives helped, and, and I was hoping this new microphone might help. I listened to the right angles were recorded on it. And uh, I didn't, I actually thought it might have been worse, but hopefully it's a little bit better. In any event, here we are. Uh, as long as you can make out the actual language, that's uh, pretty much uh, good enough as far as uh, the extraordinarily limited demands of the uh, Stratosphere Lounge uh, require. So, anyway, uh, good to see everybody. Big show uh, tonight, uh, just in terms of of uh, announcements and things been doing an awful lot of uh thinking because because uh, well, that's what i do uh, uh just uh had a chance to, to to uh finish up some things and that was handy one last little adjustment here and i think i'll be probably be satisfied with everything um so uh in the course of the last week since we saw you last, or since you saw me last, or we saw each other last, or however this works, uh, was able to finish a couple things that have been um, ongoing for a while, and uh, and they're kind of put away now. So I only wonder. Do this manually. I have to get up off the couch and change the channel. What kind of what kind of world is this? Uh, okay, so um, so here's here's what we got. Uh, got a couple things to show uh, today, not much, um, and then uh, I've been uh, joking about this, teasing about it, playing around with it, and finally I got to the point where I was able to commit to it. So uh, we got the second channel up. We've got um, the finished animation on the second channel. I really, really like the graphics. It took me uh, a long time to get everything I needed, but the good news is it's ready. So. Uh, what we're going to be doing here now is we're going to be doing uh, two streams a week. We're going to be doing um, Stratosphere Lounge on Thursday nights. And then we're going to be doing a second channel uh, stream on Monday nights. So uh, I think that with that second channel stream up, this will probably make life easier for everybody. So what that means is on um, Thursday nights on Stratosphere Lounge, we'll be dealing in the future uh, going forward we'll be dealing with the um with the political step on stratosphere lounge and then on monday nights we'll be dealing with the pop culture animation stuff and all the rest of it so uh yeah uh, uh, uh gk masterson put the link up in the comments there it's called the uh, stratosphere studios if you get a chance to go and we'll put the link in there and right now the only thing living there is the finished animation which i'm about to show you the finished animation as we've said here in the uh, in the comment section uh but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna separate the streams. You ne should never cross the streams. So Thursday nights, Stratosphere Lounge, as always, and that's going to be taking pretty much exclusively political questions. And then um, on Monday nights, we're going to be doing uh, maybe Stratosphere Studio. I had a thought maybe I'd call it Table Read, but that's actually kind of weak. Um, so uh, yeah, is this? Uh... Yeah, we got. Got a nice little um, animated logo there for the whole thing, and so we're, uh, we're just actually really happy with it. I think it looks great. Um, so, 
here's uh, what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to, I thought maybe I should just include a link to this. And then I realized, what about space questions, asked Dave. That's a profoundly deep and interesting question, Dave. I'm going to go with uh, space questions can be on the Stratosphere Lounge. Uh, science fiction space questions would go into Stratosphere Studios. And if there's the slightest deviation, there's going to be hell to pay. Um, so, um, yeah, so we're going to be doing that. We're going to be streaming to, uh, to Twitch, but also to YouTube starting on Monday. I understand it's possible to do both simultaneously, so I don't have to do four shows. That's a relief. And then, uh, and then we'll start to stream Stratosphere Lounge directly to YouTube as well. Um, so, uh, I was going to just simply include a link to this and then uh, to the finished animation. When I say finished, I've been talking about finished, nearly finished, almost finished, close to finished. When I say finished, finished, I mean it's mastered and I have put the stuff away. It's archived, it's backed up, and, um, and then... Uh, it is done, done. And I thought I'd throw a link to that. And then I said to myself, you know, you guys have suffered through the whole process. You know, you've, 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 you've gone, um, you've gone trooping with me down this road for almost a year or whatever. So, um, so I'm going to play the finished animation here on the Stratosphere Lounge. And I know many of you have seen this before, and some of you have seen parts of it before, probably five, six times. But this is it. This is as done as it gets. Um, including the new um, end title. Uh, and I have to tell you, I, I spent, I thought it would take me a week. Of course, it took me four weeks. That's, that's uh, how build time works. But um, with that said, when I finally got the, the, the D words going back and forth and finally got the ending to not only something that was tolerable, but something I actually loved, it's my favorite part of the show now. It used to be my least favorite part is when they get to the castle. Now it's my, my favorite part by far. Um, so, uh, if you have headphones, by the way, i put some work into the audio mix, so just saying, if you have, happen to have So, uh, this is it, and, and after I finally got that done, I sat down and, and watched the thing practically frame by frame and said, okay, what, what, most of this stuff nobody would notice. Some of it, some people noticed, like the, the leather or, or the the uh the the armor flexing there was a one particular walk that really distorted the armor on the chest and it really bothered me and, and anyway i went through some of these things were very big some of them were very little some of them were tiny little things you never miss like uh like footsteps that weren't there and now they're there and it actually adds a lot um there was one thing in there that i think i'd been working on the thing for i don't know four months five months before i noticed it and it was it was the scene where the the, uh, the the man and the woman are coming out of the forest, the strong men, uh, the the uh, weak men and the crazy women, and and the the woman's torch isn't working. It's just had a lot of problems with that torch isn't working. Well, torch is working now, so I basically went through and and looked at know, 20, 25 little tiny little things I wanted to fix, and I fixed them. And so um, honestly, while there may be one or two extraordinarily tiny things I'm not really sure that there are this is the finished version so um, uh, why don't we all just kind of kick back and relax and watch this together it's been an awful lot of work for one guy to do all of this stuff but and Zoe again just knocked it out of the park but every one of these 
22,700 frames or whatever was done by me, all of it, the lighting, the direction, the, I didn't build the models, but I animated their little fingers and, and I did the sound effects and all of it. So this is what one guy who's not a professional at this can do. Imagine what we could do if we had an actual, uh, an absolutely, you know, an actual studio. Okay, so uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, take a second to get the uh, sound down and all this stuff, and then we will we will roll Diaz for Dungeon, an American allegory, and uh, basically here it comes. This forest was alive once, very beautiful. The air was sweet. The leaves on these trees made an emerald canopy over the entire glen. Songbirds flitted about everywhere. The game was plentiful in all directions. A small clear stream ran down that hill to here, right here. This very hair. I first kissed a girl under that tree under when I was 14. Some years later, we were married. And soon God gave us two beautiful small girls. On summer days when they would splash about in a stream here, and their laughter in the sunlight was, to me, like the sounds of silver bells. Well, I, I pray they are safe and well, good prince, back at thy castle. No, brother, they, they are not. They're gone, all gone, never to return, as is this forest. What hath caused this great evil? Not what, good Sir Knight, but rather who? The ones who did this, these are the villains we seek? And to that end, we must now make haste, my friend. Even now the sun retreats behind yonder hills. And we have two leagues yet to travel. Therefore, let us make haste. Through the fire, then. Aye, through the fire. Tis the only way I know.
has brought me through unpathed waters to these undreamed shores, and yet still, that will not tell me of our destination. You and I are past our dancing days. I do not like this place, and would not willingly waste my time in it. And how shall I speak of where this path leads, brother? Hell is empty, and all the devils are here. How is it that clouds still hang on you? Why hast thou such a February face so full of frost, of storm and cloudiness? I am not bound to please thee with my answers, brother. Vengeance is in my heart. Death is in my hand. Blood and revenge are hammered in my head. My drops of tears I'll turn to sparks of fire. I will have revenges on them all, that all the world shall. I will do such things. What they are yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of this earth. Here once flowed the river Lithia, which had long protected our lands. For these thrice damned murderers doth hate and fear water and will not cross over it. Who, brother? Who? Those who may not be named. Patience. You shall see them soon enough. You vex me greatly, good prince. Well, be vexed then and damned for it in the bargain. Turn thyself around if thou lack the courage or the will to finish what we have yet to begin. Mend your speech a little, lest thou may mar thy fortunes. Pray forgive me, my friend. Oh, full of scorpions is my mind. These sights are daggers in my eyes. There stands the borders of their realm. Surely this is in jest. A gate with no walls. Locked, brother. The border, with no walls, hath a gate which is locked. What purpose can this serve? It keeps out the honest, brother. A kingdom with no borders, guards, or sentries, unpatrolled by armed men on horseback is no kingdom, brother. Tis but a wild and savage place that knows not law, nor God, nor reason, and is nothing but an invitation for banditry and cruel deprivation. If this were played upon a stage now, I would condemn it as an improbable fiction. There is movement in the forest ahead. I see them. Pray give them none of your attention, brother. There are darker creatures we must slay this night. What think you is their nature? They are not but woodland snitches, brother. Snitches? A multitude of snitches guards this place which thou namest not. Get thee back to thy impudent whispering, thou bootless Boiled bottom blackguards. 
prickling of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. More denizens of this godforsaken land. Name these flea-bitten, shard-born maggot pies as they come so that I may know what manner of demon issues forth from this horrid and dismal realm. The barking man and the criminally insane, brother. They have no harm in them but themselves let them pass. And these? More evil constituents of this demonic philosophy. The willfully blind. The fatally open-minded. Maiden mothers deserted by cowardly and selfish men. The gutless and the heartless. The loud and the vulgar. The weak-minded and gullible. Lying rulers and absurd magistrates. Those who worship the primitive. And what be these reeky, fly-bitten deformities? Cowards with the hearts of slaves, gluttons, drunkards, and hedonists, all appetite and no discipline. The victims of these villains yet unseen, and not their servants. Go, get thee hence, thou wayward, yeasty imbeciles. And these pretty things, pray. Weak men and insane women, my friend. These lands are both the home and cause of them. The weak men make the women crazy, and the crazy women make the men weak. The devil damn thee blacked out, elf-skinned, cream-faced loon. Where gots thou that goose look? Never mind, thou art forgiven. And what of this churlish, dog-hearted miscreant? Have a care, brother. It's one of the perpetually enraged. May I? We are in great haste now, good sir knight. This cold night will turn us all into fools and madmen. Well, my lord Alfonso, I confess, I thought thou was embroidering thy tale, but I see now thou hast not told the tenth part of it. Aye, if this is not hell, then hell can be seen from those towers yonder. It is a formidable fortress. And one that leeches the courage from thy marrow, brother. We will need the full measure of the valor that dwells in thy strong heart ere the sun rises. Then let us to this task that thou hast set for us, good prince. Tis only one stone stacked upon another where the truth of it be known. Enraged beasts blinded by hate, 
madmen and imbeciles, monsters, legions of snitches, all of these things issue from these gloomy walls. I wish my horse had the speed of thy tongue. I pray thee, silence now, good sir knight. So long as yonder castle sleeps, then a few words are the best men. I will ask thee a final time, brother. Name this place. I dare not, brother. I cannot. I will not. Then name thyself, thou great, stinking, fusty dung heap. Brother! I will not sneak in like a common thief under a cloak of stars, good prince. Dividimus populum, Latin. We divide people? That makes little sense. Thy Latin doth need burnishing, good prince. Dividimus populum doth mean we divide the people. Yet there above hangs the fiery letter D. That is the riddle we must solve. Tis visible for twenty leagues in all directions. It must have some meaning. Mayhaps we may guess at what word the encircled D doth represent. Damaged? Dangerous. Dark. Deadly. Decadent. Decay. Deceitful. Decrepit. Defamatory. Defeatist. Defective. Defensive. Deficient. Deformed. Degenerate. Degrading. Delirious. Deluded. Demented. Demonic. Dependent. Deplorable. Depraved. Depressing. Deranged. Derogatory. This is great sport. Despairing. Despicable. Despondent. Destructive. Detestable. Detrimental. Devastating. Devious. Diabolical. Difficult. Dilapidated. Dim. Dingy. Dying, dirty. Disaffected. Disagreeable. Disappointing. Disapproving. Disarmed. Disastrous. Discourteous. Discredited. Discriminatory. Disdainful. Disease. Mm, disgraceful. Disgusting. Disheartening. Dishonest. Dishonorable. Disillusioned. Disingenuous. Disinterested. Dislikable. Disloyal. Dismal. Dismissive. Disobedient. Disorganized. Disparaging. Disrupted. Dissatisfied. Disturbed. Divisive. Domineering. Downhearted. Drab. Drained. Dreadful. Dreary. Droopy. Drowsy. Drunk. Dubious. Dull. Duplicitous. Dwindling. Dysfunctional. Hmm. You win. <laughs> Brother, D is for dungeon, a place where slaves and prisoners are tortured and imprisoned. And we are here to free them, are we not? Do you wish the honor of going first, my friend? No, brother, I think not. After you.
That'll do, pig. Um, yeah, that's a lot of work for one, for one person. I'm very, very, very pleased with it. I, I couldn't be happier with it. Uh, many times during the course of making this, I would send a couple of lighting scenes to like a texture guy or a, you know, a modeler, people working in the business. And then many times I get, what studio are you working for? So I just, I'm just doing this in my spare time. Um, and uh, yeah, so the whole, the whole purpose of this was um, uh, to show we could deliver something, you know, of quality. Uh, and really cool stuff happens when we get inside the castle too. So uh, that'd be fun. So anyway, for those of you who've been here from the very first lighting test, it was, I don't know, eight, nine, ten months ago, maybe less. Or more, rather. Uh, thank you. Somebody mentioned we should, what about the R words for Republicans? I had a lot of fun with that because it's, it's great. You know, responsible, respectable, uh, reasonable, romantic, uh, uh, a ton of them. Um, but when I saw those, I went looking for a list of adjectives that begin with D. And when I saw how many of them were derogatory, divisive, and disgusting, I just couldn't believe my, uh, my eyes. It was a, it was a blessing. Um, so... Um, anyway, uh, there's an awful lot of, uh, of you guys in this too, because, uh, there's just constant feedback on this thing and, and, and I'm very, uh, very, very grateful, very pleased about all of it. Couldn't be happier with the final product. I'm very, very proud of it. Now we got to promote it and get it out there and get this other thing going. So, um, we are going to get to political questions and stuff and starting on Monday night, we're going to, uh, divide the, the, uh, these two subjects up, um, and have a... A wall separating a wall separating these these two things an unbreachable wall between uh, sci-fi and politics um, now uh, since I got this done so I got the channel finished and all these other things have been hanging around for quite a long time uh, I was able to start looking forward to you know what we're going to be doing next um, on starting on Monday night I have to have a little conversation uh, with my uh, attorney, but I don't think it's going to be a big deal. Uh, so here's some, some good news, and then we will we will move on to the politics, and that's what it will be from now on on, on Thursdays. So starting on Monday night, um, if I can figure out a way to get the agreement done, I am going to I'm going to start uh, dispersing some of this load uh, on the um, on the colony's backstory stuff. There's just a, a ton of stuff, and um, and I uh, I'm looking for something here that'll uh, help us put put my um, my cogitating spectacles on here. So I had a little problem, and one of them is, um, and and this is a a blessing by the way. This is a quick little aside. A lot of uh, people have talked about this. People who've studied uh, movie history, film studies, and so on. Uh, Often, in fact, usually, the the shoots that are the the toughest emotionally are the ones that make the best movies, and that's because there's so much um, back and forth and interplay. The classic example we've talked about a hundred times, not going to talk about now, but Jaws, where where the the shark just didn't work. He's got no movie. What he's got no movie. So Spielberg has to invent things, and it turns out that the things that he invented put the shark in your mind instead of on the screen because the shark actually looked kind of crummy. But by the time you saw him chewing up Quint, you already believed that shark. But if so, if it had worked the way it was supposed to, it would have been eh. But it didn't, so Spielberg got a chance to do what Spielberg does, and that's evoke emotions and and 
and scare you without showing you, which is the best kind of scare at all. So out of that kind of interplay, I, I had something um, happen similar with me on the colonies. Uh, and that is my working shark would be if I had um, uh, my own you know, big budget and modeling team, but I don't, which means I have to use existing assets. So um, I'm going to grab some examples for you. Uh, so uh, I've got the, uh, you've seen the, the, photo, uh, the renderings of the Armstrong, which are kind of smooth and cool looking, you know, kind of a neat looking thing. But then I realized, you know, I kind of want, I really kind of want, you know, this. Uh, these are all just, just grabbed from the web. That is kind of cool, you know, and, and I kind of think that, you know, I want to I want to do these kind of things, but at the same time, I don't want to lose, uh, you know, the um, I'll just throw a bunch of them up. I'm not even going to resize them. Uh, I don't want to lose the slick stuff, like you know, like this. Uh, I but I do want to keep that. So, how do I get away with this? In fact, here's a kind of a hybrid. How do I how do I explain this? Um, it was a it was a problem that was driving me nuts, and uh, and I, I finally solved it. And I'm very happy with the solution. So uh, yeah, you get the idea. Let's see if I find one more just for fun. Um, yeah, here you go. So so this kind of stuff um, I have not seen uh, ever. I've seen. I saw what they did in the expanse, and, and I got to tell you, I had a lot of problems with the expanse. And one of my problems with the expanse was um, that uh, I, I didn't like the ship designs, and, and it was so dark. It was everything in space was so dark. Now, as it turns out, uh, Beef Fire here has, has uh, preemptively landed on what my actual solution was, but I actually went further than this. So how do I how do I explain why some ships have a, a level deck and and gravity is down and you know that I can I've explained that away using that magnetic field thing where you wear like a magnetic suit and the highly advanced computer thing makes you feel like gravity. So I can I can justify it, but how do I set it up so that I've got this and this other really kind of cool looking spacey kind of thing. And I realized all right now think this through here Billy. Um, so I did. Uh, my first thought was, okay, so what about things like this giant landers, you know, the, the big quad thing, the Nostromo-looking thing? Well, those things have to go into an atmosphere, and so they can't have all of these little spindly pieces. All right, great, but what about the difference between these ships that are never going to land on a planet, and yet some are smoother looking than other ones? What's the difference? And then, and then it, it, I finally got it, and it just made me so happy. People have suggested different manufacturers and stuff. Yes, but we're we're talking about entire different looks, different classes. It, it's it's a it's almost like different universes, and you got to explain this. And I I realized I could. So let me uh, just find my notes on this. Uh, yeah. So um, in uh, oh, my vision's getting worse fast in aviation when um, we give our, our call signs, I'm talking about general aviation now, uh, we would, um, 
we would uh, give our call sign, the, the November number, and then the, the letters, and then we would add a slant. Uh, and I'm, it's been a while, actually. I'm a little embarrassed to say. Uh, I think one of them was slant uniform for, um, for GPS. So it would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, long, easy, 506, Delta Bravo, um, you know, uh, T-hangers, ready. Uh, Sierra, uh, sorry, November 506, <laughs> it's been a long time. Long, easy, 506, Delta Bravo, slant uniform. We are at uh, the T-hangers, ready to taxi with Tango. So these, these slant things that you'd put at the end of it would, would be a designation of what you've got on board. Slant, I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten so many of these things. But mode, do you have a mode C transponder? Do you have this? Do you have this? So this, this slant thing would tell the controllers what you had on board. And I realized that I could do that. Slant golf, is that what it is now? It sounds about right. In any event, I realized I could do that in this game and that would allow me to classify types of ships, not individual ships, not manufacturers, classes, classes of ships. And I thought, does this make sense? I realized it does make sense. You know, when I when I when you go out on on the on the road, you, you don't see a vehicle. You see you see custom vehicles. A, a truck is different than a sports car, and a, and a cement hauler is different than a than a gas tanker and so on. So I decided, okay, so let's see what, what classes can we put them in? And if we can just kind of throw this kind of thing in there subtly, people will realize, okay, so the reason this thing looks different than this is, is the other one. So these are the uh, these are the designations I came up with. There might be some others and uh, these are subject to uh, change, but nevertheless. So uh, the ships like the big, you know, the one with the big fuel tanks, the thing I showed earlier, like uh, like this guy. It's a little tiny. All right, so that would be a ship that would give its call its call sign, and then it would be it would call itself Slant Victor, and the Slant Victor would be the V for everybody has their own call signs. Yes, Marisha, they have. Oh, here you mean? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. So, so Slant Victor is for vacuum only ships. In other words, if you're Slant Victor, you've got centrifuges and you've got radiators and you've got tanks and 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 you have no streamlining whatsoever so slant victor is vacuum only exclusively um slant romeo would be the r would be for refueling that's where i got that's where i got the the reason that i can have semi-streamlined ships like the armstrong so slant romeo for refueling there's this idea about wilderness refueling and that idea is that you're burning essentially burning hydrogen for um for your reaction mass and you can go and buy fuel or you can dip into the atmosphere preferably of a gas giant and if you make a if you make enough of these trips you can actually suck up enough uh hydrogen to replenish your tanks visually it's fantastic because you're basically doing a series of, of looping orbits that are bringing you into the very, very, very top of the atmosphere of, of a gas giant. So uh, not enough to heat it to like red hot or anything, but enough to get a little bit of, you know, very, very low pressure stuff in there. So um, Slant Romeo would be a, a ship that is a non-landing ship. It's a, it's a fully spaceborne ship, but it has, it has 
basic streamlining, enough streamlining so that it can go out and, and refuel itself. That makes sense for the Armstrong because there's not going to be a gas station out there. So it's smooth enough to go through the uh, several different de you know orbits of this thing and, and suck up its own gas. So there was that. Uh, the, the, the giant quad things, the, the Nostromo-looking type things with the pivoting thrusters, those would be slant Lima for landers. Uh, shuttle type thing would be slant whiskey for winged. Um, we talked a couple episodes ago about this really cool looking thing. I, I wanted it to be like a private jet and it didn't have wings and it didn't have, you know, vertical thrusters. And it's like, how do I figure out how to use this? And we talked about, okay, it's magnetically captured and it's magnetically launched. It just flies into a magnetic field and, and it's slowed down and stopped and so on. So that'd be slant Mike for the magnetic, uh, magnetic landing type thing. Uh, slant Sierra would be specialized. That'd be anything, you know, that's outside of this. Slant X-ray would be for experimental. And then Slant November for naval. So, uh, again, these are subject to change. But uh, Slant naval would be, or, or Slant November would be something with a gun on it. Dave wants to know, was, will the Aurora make an appearance? Yes, it will. Uh, it's put too much work into that to not have it make an appearance. And it's just, it's cool. So I thought to myself, all righty, self. Uh, if we do this, and we shall, then how detailed can we get? Now, this is the last of the stratosphere lounges that are, you know, uh, bicorn. Bi uh, we're going to get to the politics in a minute. Um, from now on, we'll be uh, dividing these up. But uh, the question is, how much detail can I put into these things? Because I want, I don't want, see, there's, there's a lot of, stuff out there there's things i've seen out there online that are photo real and i mean really photo real and they're using actual physical rendering physical textures actual lighting it and and so much of the stuff including i'm sorry to say the fantastic texture on the armstrong it looks like a computer graphics texture but if you were to take if you were to if you were to really really stick to your guns really stick to your guns how realistic could you get this thing looking? So Unreal Engine basically substitutes complex geometry, series of vertices that are drawing a physical shape in 3D that is then lit. And the whole idea behind a game engine is, now we're gonna make much simpler things and we'll put the details into the texture. We can have textures that make it appear closer and further away, we'll do all of that stuff. So that's how you get, you know, 60 frames a second um, because you've got essentially relatively simple objects with tremendous textures on them. Okay, but how much, how much texture can you put in? I mean, how much geometry, how many, how many vertices can you put in? Well, up until Unreal 5, and there's no other software that does this as far as I'm aware, and as far as I'm concerned, I haven't tried it yet. It's, it's absolute black magic. I don't have the slightest idea how it's done. But nevertheless, it is apparently done. Uh, Unreal 5 features uh, a lighting system, universal lighting system called Lumen, which basically you put one light in there and the light behaves exactly the way it would behave in the real world. You shine a flashlight on a red wall, it throws a red reflection and all the rest of it. And they've also got something called Nanite. The, when they did the demo for Unreal Engine 5 over a year ago, they showed a scene where there was a an extremely complex statue. And then as this as this woman walks through this room, it turns out there's 50 of them. And, and the guy said something like, this scene has one billion vertices. 
and it's running at 60 frames a second. And I said to myself, that's just not possible. It can't be possible. How do they store it? Where does it go? I mean, every time you reach the limit of your RAM, and I've got 256 gigabytes of RAM on my workstation, and I'll fill that up. So I thought, all right, let's here's, here's what we'll do. Um, there are a number of model modelers out there, and one of them is, is a guy named uh, Chatsi, I think, on uh, TurboSquid and CG Trader, which are the two sources for models that I use. And this guy has a lot of. He's a he's an engineer. When he builds a, a little piece, it's so unbelievably realistic. It's so good that it, it's unbelievable. But they're very expensive because you get lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of these little tiny little details. So. Um, I thought, well, for the sake of the argument, why don't we see if we were to forget about the limitations on the number of vertices, forget about how complex the model is, let's just assume that Nanite's going to do what Nanite is advertised to do. Then, what can I do in terms of making something realistic using geometry? So, I have a few tests to show you all. Uh, it's nice to be moving out of the, here's another test on, on the DS for Dungeon World and, and into tests for this. So I took a number of this guy's kit bashing things. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, it goes back to the days of, of like Star Wars. And may even have preceded that, but certainly by the time the first Star Wars came out in 1977, uh, the way they would get their, their model spaceships done, you know, like the Millennium Falcon or, or any of these things, is, th is through kit bashing. They didn't have the pieces that they needed, so they went out and bought model kits of, of, you know, they'd buy tanks and they'd buy cars, they'd buy airplanes, they'd buy any model kit they could, and they'd take a little piece like maybe a wheel or a hub or something, and they'd take that off of the car and they glue it on the side, and now it looks like a valve or something like that. Okay, great. So you take pieces of this kit, pieces from that kit, bash them together, and you end up with something new. Well. Kit bashing is a mar is a market unto itself now. There's lots and lots of people that put out individual components for kit bashing. Um, so uh, I decided to get the most complex. There's only one guy out there really. It's this guy Shotzi and everybody else. He is in a in a league of his own. Uh, and I thought, can I build a, a, one of these complex spaceships, one of the you know vacuum ships with the centrifuges and tanks and all of this stuff using this guy's parts for kit bashing because it's going to destroy the ram it's going to eat everything there is but let's just assume nanite works so i said okay let's try that now i hope these play um so i i built uh, a centrifuge arm and uh and i rendered it these renderings i should point out there are no textures on this this is just sheer geometry and basic colors hopefully this will play so this is the first thing i got out of it if, if it works Hey, there it is. So, um, okay. Yeah, that looks pretty cool. Uh, I could live with that uh, for, you know, it's an hour's work or two hours work or something. And then I realized that that animation I just showed is, is falling victim to something that is so pervasive that I, I don't even catch it myself. Uh, but we've seen this Every time we've seen a ship that's using spins for gravity, with the exception of 2001 A Space Odyssey, because that one had Arthur C. Clarke to make sure the science was right. 
I don't know how many times I've seen it. You've seen it too. How many times have you seen a ship going by and there's a centrifuge and there's one centrifuge just spinning around like that, right? It's just spinning. And I, I was talking to my friends up at X-Core, the guys that uh, make rocket engines up in the Mojave 10 years ago or longer now, I guess. And I told him about this, this going to just have this one thing spinning. And, and the guy said, that's not possible. I said, what do you mean it's not possible? I said, no, I can't have one of these things spinning. It, 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 in order to have that, you'd have to have a frictionless bearing. I said, yeah, but it's counter-rotating. See, uh, the, 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 the arm is going around, but, but, the, but we're, we're counter-rotating with the mechanism. He said, think that over, Bill. It's not possible. There's nothing for, for, the, for the stationary part to bite. Right, so so if you start if you start this centrifuge spinning this way, the friction on the on the um, on the um, bearing is going to start to rotate the whole the whole uh, fuselage with it. You say, oh, we're going to put in counter rotation. We're going to rotate opposite it. Yes, but there's nothing for this. Th this thing is not anchored to anything. It's it's going to pull it around no matter what you do. And that's when I realized, oh my God, absolutely yes, you have to have counter rotating something counter-rotating mass if you're going to spin a centrifuge one way you have to have something that is of equivalent mass going in the opposite direction um i didn't know art uh, very well john uh, i don't i don't think i did i knew i knew uh, jeff and, and and everybody else up there but anyway um it's not you, you have to have Whatever's turning one way, you have to have something of equal mass turning the other way. It doesn't have to be a ring. If you've got a ring turning one way, you can have a couple of things out on poles and spin it the other way. But you've got to have it. You've got to have counter-rotation. So I realized, okay, so that animation I just showed you is, is, uh, is wrong. You want to play again? You want to do that? No? You swine. All right. So i got to... I don't have to throw away what I've got. What I have to do is I have to change the animation. So that's what I did. So instead of it looking like, uh, I'll just put it up again. Instead of it looking like this, rotating like this, uh, which is, again, my, I'll just have it floating along doing that. Can't do it, not possible. So then I realized, no, no, it's actually gonna look uh, like this. That's, that's how it's gonna go which I think is cooler, actually. So then I thought, all right, so that looks pretty good. How much detail is actually in this thing? Well, it turns out quite a bit. Already, you're beginning to get the feel of it, right? You're beginning to, you're beginning to feel it, right? This, this kind of... There's something about, yeah, Bart thinks I got the science backwards, but I don't think I did. Uh, the guys that I know who are space guys say that you can't do, do one of them. So if it turns out I'm wrong, then my life is easier, but I don't think it's possible. In any event, uh, that's something I will research. So there was that, and I thought, okay, the nice thing about this is you've got these, you've got these counter-rotating things like that, which is dramatic coming at you, but it's especially dramatic if you're standing on one of the halves. So here's one taken from a stationary position. It's not moving relative to the halves. It's just, this is what it looks like if you're in a spacesuit and this thing is not moving.
and I think that's wicked. So for the show tonight, I did a, a, a rendering, and it's been working on it for eight or nine hours, um, and uh, I was all ready to show it, and it looked like, oh man, it's going to finish at 5.35, 5.40, just enough time. And then I looked at it, and I realized, okay, number one, I some reason or another, one of the keyframes is wrong, so they're not rotating at the same speed, but I told it to turn on. This is a junk renderer. This is a stock renderer. It's not in Unreal. This is in 3D Studio. This is just in 3D Studio. So I thought I need to see more of this. So I, I was not going to show it. Then I realized, no, you know what? The, 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 the mistakes are part of the process, and that's what we're going to be doing on Channel 2 is we're going to be saying, oh, this is a surprise. So this thing's wacky. And just the, the, the shadows and the lighting are just spazzing out. I don't know why. They just are. But if you are willing to put that aside and look at what the geometry is doing, it's actually pretty cool. So this is the last one I've got to show you guys today. Lightning storm in space. It's just cool. And you could tell they're rotating at different speeds, but you get the idea, right? And again, no textures on these guys. These are just raw, just raw footage. So, um, so we we can we can do both. Um, now, Quivo says, uh, and, and and you're right about this, Quivo. It's like, and this is an interesting compromise. Quivo says, uh, "Hey, just have it look cool, Bill. Uh, the science is secondary." Here's Here's where I am about this. This is an interesting, interesting point. You can have both. You just have to know what you're doing. So I am going to stick to the science 100%. No magic at all. None. The only magic that I'm allowing is for, um, is for the, the, these stargates. And they said wormholes are possible, but they probably evaporate in the space of, you know, nanoseconds. I said, oh. So you can make them, yeah, you can make them, but it just takes a ton of energy and they, they collapse immediately. This idea of opening up a tube just never going to happen. Okay, but they, you can make them, right? Yes. So now we have an engineering problem, not a physics problem. And we're talking about 250 years in the future. That's a fair amount of engineering. So I, the only thing I've allowed is something that is allowed by physics. The warp drive thing, no matter how much you look at it, doesn't seem to add up. The, the numbers are just not there. So anyway, I did what I did, and and forcing myself to, to, to look at the actual science made for just a tremendously dramatic cool. And it also means, okay, we got these lines now, and all of the storylines that spin off of me having to find a way to make the science work. So that's what we're doing. And the thing I talked about 10, 15 minutes ago about the different types of ship was a way for me to try to get a cool-looking look, which is exactly right, uh, you want it to look cool, but the the brand of this show is that the science is as close to real as we can get it. So, how do we do both? And and it's it requires thought. I mean, it's something I've been thinking about on and off for months. And then finally, I sat down and started thinking about it seriously. And I realized, okay, so you got different types of vehicles doing different types of things, and they the the. Uh, long ships with the long tanks, the spinning centrifuges, the hubs, and all that stuff. That stuff looks cool, and you don't need anything else. It's cheaper, but you get something like the Armstrong. You got to be smooth enough to get an atmosphere, have level deck, and all that stuff. So there you go. Um, 
so I'm able to uh, keep my promise to myself and, and to the show. I'm able to justify things that look like artificial gravity. And by the way, since it's an animated show, I don't need any artificial gravity. I, I mean, don't really have to have it. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, gravity's such a weak force, it seems impossible to generate. But magnetism is millions and millions of times stronger, and that's something we do every day. So, um, this is how this is how good science fiction works and how good writing works too you you end up with with here's an easy solution yeah but that's not scientifically accurate well screw it I'll, we'll just do it anyway okay let's turn on the sonar on the uss discovery uh but if you know enough about it about the background if you really got the science down then you can come at it the other way. Everybody that's producing stuff out there now says, let's get it look cool, and we'll backstory as much of the science as possible. Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick, on the other hand, in 2001, which you can see right here, did it the exact opposite way. They said, okay, instead of doing what we think looks cool and then backing it into the science, let's see what the science would tell us, and then we'll see how it looks. And when I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, I can't tell you how, how groundbreaking that was. It was just, it was just, just drop your mouth. It, it was so influential that all of these ships have taken, essentially, look, all these little pieces and stuff, the, the little greebles that they're called, and I was talking about kit bashing, you know, the surface of discovery is not a smooth plane, it's all tiny little things, and and that's the genius of the of the guys who did the special effects works on 2001. They realized that that your eye is looking for detail, and the more little details you put on that, the bigger this thing kind of has to be in your own in your own mind. By the way, the discovery was something like I want to say it was like 12 or 18 feet long. It was huge, huge. And the reason it had to be so huge, this is a little fun uh, fact for uh, for. Uh, movie makers out there. The exposure times on each individual frame was a, a, a couple seconds. I'm talking about the photographic exposure, exposure time. Normally you just run a camera and you get 24 frames a second. But the reason that they had to expose this so long and the reason they needed such a big model, big model gets you all the details, but the problem is with the big model and you got a camera here the front of the vehicle will be in focus and the back will be out of focus or vice versa. And your eyes don't work that way. If you're outside and you're looking at the Queen Mary, you see the whole thing in focus because it's actually hundreds of yards away. So you've got this problem when you're dealing with something that's three yards away. You want to make it look big, but the focus problem is telling your eyes that no, it's not, it's not real. So they had to do a long enough exposure because they had to stop this thing down so much that the, so that the whole thing was in focus the whole time. And that's why it's magnificent. It's, it's no question it's still the best, um, still the best uh, special effects ever. Now, on Monday, when we get into this, um, I said I was going to start, uh, start the process of distributing this workload. Uh, and one of the problems, one of many, 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 many elements that need to be in this thing and need to be right is the displays. 
Um, I will take a moment just to show you something here. Uh, this will be worth the effort. So, good news and bad news. Uh, good news is, in the same way as kit bashing, there are also a number of After Effects plugins to produce science fiction displays, and these are universally called HUDs. Okay? Um, let me see if I got one on YouTube here. HUDs. And, uh, and we've seen them a hundred times. The first time we ever saw these things on the screen, I believe, was in Minority Report. The first time that, that, um, that, that Tom Cruise is, is moving stuff around there. Everybody liked it so much, so everybody used it. Um, but <laughs> there's some real problems with that. And I'll show you what these problems are. Uh, see, this is the kind of thing that is going to make this show a success. It's, it's not only solving these kind of problems, it's kind of making these kind of comments. Perfect. Perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. All right, let me download this. Uh, is that what I'm looking for? No. Let me find a better one. Uh, all right, this is good enough to get, get you the idea. All right, there are better versions than this, but you'll get the idea. Let me just download this real quick. So what you can buy out there or you can buy After Effects things that make these HUDs. And I should really pick a better example than this, honestly. I'm sorry, give me one second. Uh, it's worth the time. So, so you've seen it a, a, a hundred times, right? You've seen, you saw, it, you saw it on The Expanse. So stay with me on this. So on The Expanse, you're watching The Expanse, and, um, and uh, they've got this giant display in the middle of the room. Right, and here's it's it's in the air. It's all hologram. It's a giant hologram. Uh, okay, uh, so you've got this hologram. Fantastic. Yeah, this one this will be a little bit better. Okay, and it looks cool because you are watching it from one perspective. Nobody thinks about this. If you're looking at this hologram from the other direction, all the labels are backwards. And if you've got the, the, one of these sci-fi tropes, and I'm going to, and I am so much going to enjoy poking holes in these things. I, I just can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. One of the tropes is that everything is always dark because Ridley Scott invented the future and cities look like cyberpunk from Blade Runner and the inside of, of, of science fiction is metal plates and, and steam vents and it's dark because he's making a horror movie. We're going to blow all those things away. One of the things that we're going to blow away is this is this uh, display convention. So, um, in science fiction, in order to show that it's a science fiction device, not just a regular device, a science fiction device, what's the one thing that they do perpetually to show you that this little screen that they're looking at is a science fiction screen? It's not a real screen, not a, not a not an old technology screen. It's a science fiction screen. How do they do that? They do it the same way every time. And the way they do it is they make it transparent, right? Oh, you can tell it's science fiction because you can see through it, right? So far, so good. Everybody with me? Fantastic. Oh, wow. Great. <laughs> think about how awful that is, right? And just, just think about how, how 
unbearably awful that is. If you're outside and you are and you and you want to check your phone for, for some data and you can see through it, just imagine how hard it is to read it. Not only do you not you you specifically want something to be as opaque as possible. So this idea of, oh, we're going to project all this stuff up in the air and it's going to be real big and it's going to move around, it's going to be science fiction. It's like, no, it's garbage. It's garbage. It's not, it's not going to happen that way. It's, it's, it's uh, lazy. That's the word I'm looking for. It's lazy. So this is a, a, a very simple example. There are much more complicated examples of this and much better ones than this. I just grabbed it and it was a dead air thing. So, yeah, exactly right. Dave Big Booty's got it exactly right. Uh, from Airplane 2. Uh, sort of these lights just go back and forth. Other than that, they seem to have no purpose whatsoever. These giant, you know, plasma tubes, they just go on and off, on and off. Or what do they do? In fact, let's talk about this. What do they do? Every time anything gets into this series, and I mean this, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, but anything that gets into the series has to pass the what does this actually do test, right? What does it do? And if it's got things on it, like flashing plasma tubes, you know, what do the plasma tubes do? Well, that's the energy source. Okay, so why do you have the energy source on the outside of the vehicle in glass tubes? You'd think you'd want to put that somewhere secure. Furthermore, you'd think that the radiation would kill everybody. So, so I don't. So, so take the flashing glass tubes out. Yeah, but it looks science fictiony. It looks like the cliche of science fiction. If you give people the reality, they will instantly know. Just like, just like the uh, you know, uh, Mr. Plinkett says, it's like you may not have noticed, but your brain does. That's where I'm going with this thing, right? I'm going to show people things that they think like, well, that's not very science fiction. It's because it's, it's real. It's re what does this do? Somebody comes to me with a ship design or something, and it's like, well, there's an what does it do? Well, that's the no. And, and and there's a flip side to that too. It's like, well, this is our um, this is our uh, uh, our future submarine. Okay. Uh, where's the hatch? Where do they get into it? Well, it's it's all cool curvy stuff. And okay, so great, looks cool. There's an advantage to being streamlined through the water. How do you get into this thing? Uh, you're born into it. So, with that said, this is a a, a fairly simple example of the kind of displays that you see in every computer game. Anytime you've got a bridge full of people and they're looking in the science fiction world, they see this. This is what science fiction displays of the future will look like. And I don't mean to pick on this one person. So this is a HUD. Come on. Get on with it. Do it. Okay, see how cool that is? Look how science fiction-y that is. Isn't that amazing? Wow, that's really high tech. It's got to be great. I look at something like this and I say, what is this thing trying to tell me? What's it trying to tell me? Oh, something happened. Oh, uh, I, I don't know what happened, but did we did we have a reactor failure? It doesn't say. It just changed. Look at look at all this stuff. Oh, stop with the glitches. Look at all this stuff on the side. Like I say, this is a real simple one, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. You'll, you'll look at these displays that these people are looking at and... Okay, I got it. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. 
And and what they'll see is you just see just lines of numbers. And and you know who's terrible at this is is the original alien. It's just unforgivably bad. It's like and here's all these lines of code, and it's like 9, 16, 24, 30, just these numbers just flashing. And it's like, oh, see, the computer's thinking. It's like, well, the computer may or may not be thinking, but if it is thinking, it's thinking faster than this. And why is it showing to the people? Why? Well, because it looks cool. Well, it looks cool because you're being lazy. And once again, once again, you know who wasn't lazy? Stanley Kubrick was the, with a possible exception of Orson Welles, Stanley Kubrick was the most detail-oriented director ever. It was absolutely obsessive, and it made him hell to work with. My understanding is that shot of uh, in, in The Shining of, of Jack coming up the stairs with a bat, I think they did that something like 170 times, something like that. Okay, and that's with a steady cam, and that thing's heavy. So, who got it right? 2001 got it right. Go back and look at that. You got 2001 A Space Odyssey. All of the dis display screens in that movie are perfect. They're perfect. And they're perfect because they're hand-drawn. They're hand-drawn by animators. And they're hand-drawn by animators who have some kind of science background. So you would see actual constellations. You and, and you wouldn't be getting this whole flow of stuff. I have a friend named Brent who um, who designs flight displays. He was one of the first designers of these electronic flight information systems. And I and at a air show five years ago, we were at Oshkosh or something, and um, we're looking at all these new um, you know flight displays for experimental aircraft. And and there's all this data up there. And and Brent looks at it. He says, "How can you possibly get any information from this cocktail party?" And I thought, man, that's Perfect. Perfect. That's exactly what it is. A cocktail party. Let's throw all of the ambient noise that we can up there. Let's throw all the numbers and all of it. What is this display telling you? Nothing. Right? Nothing. So, the bad news is, is that all of these existing HUD templates are way, way, way over complicated and they don't tell you anything. The good news is, is that those elements are there. I just need people... And it'd be nice if it weren't me. I can give them instructions and stuff. In other words, I, there there are there are probably thirty of these things at least, and each one of them has seven hundred elements. So you know you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of these little widget things doing their thing. And I'm looking at all of them. I'm looking at all of them. And I say that 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 one little thing there actually looks cool. Here are some things where if 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 it goes up, it says. 70%, it goes down, it says zero, goes up to 100, it says 100, that's a useful gauge, okay, great. So, when I talk about things like distributing uh, the load on this, on this thing for the colonies, one of the things I need is I need displays. I need displays because they have to be in the scene when the scene gets rendered, and that means you gotta start on them first. And I need a lot of displays. And I need different displays for different stations. The pilot's display is going to look different than the engineer's display. The engineer's display is likely going to be a series of trees. Star Trek got that right, right? I mean, the Star Trek looks so primitive today, but you look at the engineering room, you look at, at Scotty's big board, um, and he's got, it, it's schematics. It's, here's a line, this thing's green, this thing's red, okay, got a problem here. So so what I, when I talk about, and I'm going to get into a lot of detail on this on Monday, I want to start the process of distributing this stuff out. Um, I want to I want to be able to say this is what we're looking for here. 
go have fun. And, and so there's things like that. Um, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, my favorite part of the displays, the, the, the graphics are just beautiful. And they're very finely drawn, by the way. You know, just real, because it's, guy drew it. All of their, you know, the, the frames, do, 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 pop, 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 pop. It, it's fantastic. And then, what, 10 years later or, or 20 years later, you get 2010, and we've just now gotten Apple II graphics. So let's put those Apple II graphics in there. And you go from having these flat screens with these perfect displays to these curved TV things with like, oh, 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 oh. It's, 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 it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. But you look at this 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I'm going to review it again. I'm going to write it down. This is one of the things I need to be able to distribute. Every single one of the displays on 2001, every one of them, is color-coded and has a three-letter identifier. One of them is HAB for HAB. One of them is, um, is uh, uh, NAV for navigation. One of them is, um, oh, what was the one I was just thinking of? HIB for hibernation. They, GK, GK Masterson says they turned 2010 into a movie. I don't know if that's a joke or not, but they, yes, they did. And it, I, I, I thought it was not very good. By the way, first example in 2000, in 2010, the movie, one gigantic centrifuge swinging that way, uh, 84. One gigantic swing, and it's going to pull the Lena the other way because there's no such thing as a frictionless barrier. Uh, it's a, it's not a great movie. And Roy Scheider plays, um, um, no, don't tell me, Dr. Haywood uh, Floyd. Uh, Sterling, oh, not Sterling Hayden, whoever played Floyd in the in twenty in 2001, that guy was awesome. Uh, Roy Scheider just doesn't, doesn't do it for me. Anyway, so when I talk about distributing things, one of the things I'm going to talk about in, in some detail on Monday is want to start the process. I got to talk to the lawyer, make sure we're all clear on, on how this thing works in terms of contribution and credit and, you know, and, and all the rest of it. But one of the things I want to distribute is I want to start uh, working groups from you, from you fine people and the people that you know. So I want engineers to start thinking about what would a display of the ship systems look like. Well, you kind of need to know what they are, right? But you can help with that. You know, you got reactor, you know, you've got fuel, you know, you've got engines, you know, you've got electrical system, you've got all these other things. And I want people to start thinking about the things that they know and what they're good at so that when we get these displays actually made, we can, we can have confidence in it, which comes back to Crimson Tide, which I've talked about so many times. On the 1MC spin-up tubes 1 through 24, 1 through 24, whatever, you know, this is the, this is not a drill, this is the captain. And it's like, what, what did he say? He said what you actually would say on a nuclear uh, boomer if you're about to launch your missiles. Nobody understood what they were saying. I did, but hardly anybody did. But it sounded real because it was. It sounded real because it was. So this is the this is the target that we're shooting for on the colonies. Is is that kind of thing? I want this is this is how this is what's going to really appeal to the science fiction nerds. Is this going to be science? in this science fiction. And what I want is, I want every few moments of, of people watching this, I want somebody saying, oh, that's damn clever. That's that's really clever. That's exactly how it would be. You know, that's what I'm looking for, clever. That's, oh, that's clever. That's well thought out. I hate to pick on The Expanse, but you know, The Expanse got away with the problem of gravity by having these magnetic boots. They're constantly under thrust. Okay, okay, 
you know, it's an awful lot of fuel you're carrying. If you're going to burn this thing, you know, just a constant burn for 11 days or whatever, it's a, that's a hell of a lot of fuel. And I don't even see fuel tanks on this thing. But okay, okay, they're making an effort. But when the gravity was off, they'd show these magnetic boots. Ka-chung, ka-chung, ka-chung. You'd see two shots of that. And then, okay, well, we've got the red lights on our boots. Let me put this coffee cup over here. And the coffee cup sits there. And you just, you know, you buy it. But it's not, it's not really well thought out. Um, and, and I, I know in my heart that if this is the visual look and the, and the overarching brand, if that's what it looks and sounds like, then, then you go out and you get writers who can write stories about people because the, the, the trick of this is, and this is something I I know, this is why I've been waiting my whole life to do this. I've just spent an hour and a half talking about all of these technical details and all of the science and all the rest of it. But when it comes time to actually shoot the pilot, that script has to be something where, and I, and I plan to do this, I would have done it in a studio, it's probably going to end up being a Zoom call. But that script should be the kind of thing where if you had six actors in, sitting on stools in a black box theater and they're reading the script, it should be fascinating and you should be completely engaged without any of the background stuff at all. None. Zero. None. So I'm going to need a lot of areas of expertise. I need engineers to help with the, the displays on this. I, I'm pretty good with the aviation lingo. I can write most of that myself. Uh, I have a, a, a good friend who's a active, well, may have recently retired, but was an active member of one of the SEAL teams for quite a long time. So when these guys are going through the room, they're going to talk like real SEALs. They're not going to talk about what, uh, you know, what Hollywood, you know, art guys uh, think SEALs talk like. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to sound real because it is going to be real. And all of it's going to be real. I'll tell you what I do need. Um, I don't know if anybody out there watching this has it, but uh, if you do, I don't know if I need you to contact me yet, but, but you know, keep your phone handy, keep your pager on. I need somebody who's had some time on board a naval vessel bridge. That's one thing that I don't know. I know, I know what I want to say, and I know how I want to say it, but the language I don't have exactly right. I want to know what it sounds like. I've got a fair idea, you know, like on a submarine, you know, it's like, you don't say dive, dive, dive. It's like, you know, uh, you know, uh, diving officer make your depth, you know, three zero zero feet, three zero zero feet, 300 feet high, you know, come left to 270, that kind of thing. But um, that movie, Dave, uh, what movie started the real seals act of valor. Yeah, it was a great movie, but the, but the acting was, the acting killed it. There's one or two decent actors in there, but 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 the guys were not actors. And this is another thing that's got to be finessed. You got real, real exact real life is boring. You got to you got to bring it up enough so that it's interesting. So it's actually not a hundred percent real. You are you are bringing it up enough so that it's this. But if you bring it up too much, you get away from the reality, and so it's no longer heightened reality. Now it's just some guy who doesn't know jack about anything. <laughs> And you know what? And he goes out there with his rifle, and he says, "All right, guys, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to switch uh, rifles. Everybody, set your rifle to fully semi-automatic." That's the kind of thing 
that's the kind of thing that I am going to dedicate my life to avoiding. All right, everybody switch to fully semi-automatic. This is what people who don't know anything about guns say. Uh, so, so there. I'm going to need all of these things. I'm going to start parceling them out, and we'll start getting some feedback and start getting the big brains on this, and, and it'd be fun. It'd be really fun. Okay. Well, that was a, a fun little romp. So now let's do what we uh, said we were going to do last time, and that is we're going to start with the uh, Facebook questions. And then whether we have time to get to BillWiddle.com questions or not, I don't know. But I will tell you that this is the last Stratosphere Lounge, at least for the foreseeable future, that is going to be taking your precious political comment time and talking about goofy science fiction stuff. So this was this is the fork in the road. From now on, we're going to talk politics on Thursday night. We're going to talk science fiction and filmmaking and all the rest of it on Monday night at 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern. Let's see what we got here. Okay, so let's go to the Facebook page here. I'm really excited about doing this second show. I'm really, I think it's going to be a blast. Oh, that was not so smart. Hang on, sorry. I don't watch a lot of, um, in fact, I don't watch any content that other people are, are putting out there. I don't watch any of the Daily Wire stuff. I don't watch, you know, Hannity. I don't watch any of it. It's not because I have the highest respect for all of them. But number one, it's what I think, of, you know, do all the time. I don't need to hear it again in my time off. And secondly, I don't want to be overly influenced. But I have to tell you, I, uh, I watch something... Uh, yesterday that I liked so much I just plain want to copy it and and it is um, it is the Daily Wire uh, Ben Shapiro reaction videos that is a grand idea and and he's really good in it it's it's fun and 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 Ben really benefits from that and and so they basically find these lunatics on TikTok that's what TikTok is for is to bring out the lunatics and they Reaction videos, see, we're not going into the science fiction world now. Now we're going about the, 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 the way that the world has changed. Things are constantly evolving in terms of what people want to watch. J.P. Spears uh, is a guy who started out making fun of hippies and liberals, and now he is the second largest commentator, conservative commentator after Crowder. Um, and he's hilarious. And he's very good at it. So there's that. But one of these one of these genres that's really popular is um, reaction videos. And it, and it could be as simple as, I mean, essentially, um, uh, you know, the, the, the first of these things is like an unboxing video. It's like, oh, let's, let's, we've got this new toy. Let's open the box. These are 17 million views or something, right? I'm going to unbox this. And then there's a, you got a, you know, a new camera, a new microphone. We're going to have an unboxing video. We're going to take it out of the box and take a look at it, hook it up. These are huge numbers these things are doing. But reaction videos are, are, are a little different than that. Reaction videos are where you queue up a, a, a media file and then, you turn the camera on yourself, and then you watch it, and then in post you put it in there. So you are seeing it for the first time, at least the ones that are any good are. 
And so what, what you're really selling is not what's in the video so much as your reaction to what's in the video. And the, the ones with Ben Shapiro are just brilliant. They're, they're just brilliant. And, and they put a lot of post-production work into those things. Those guys have got everything just nailed down over there. They're fantastic. And they put a lot of work into, into those things and, and make a lot of really funny jokes with it. But it, it's just, it's, it, it's the most fun I've had with Ben. Uh, watching Ben, you, you still get all the insight, but you get, you know, you get it at semi-automatic speed instead of fully automatic speed. So uh, I would like to do that, but that's not something I'm going to be doing right now. In, in any event, there we go. Uh, so we're at the, oh, yes, we're going to get to the questions, weren't we? Yes, we were. So let's move this over here. This over here. This over here. Okay, here we go. 12 comments. And let's switch from most relevant to all comments. I just looking at my Facebook page, I just saw right below this the post for the Fauci video, and I the right angle we did on Fauci, and I just threw up in my mouth a little. Um, the virtue signal we shot today has got something to say about that. Um, so, all right, here we go. We ready? Yeah, I think we're ready. All right, here we go. Uh, Sergio Stevens says, looking forward to it. Uh, well, here it is, Sergio, and, and I cannot even begin to imagine your disappointment, but, but thanks for, uh, thanks for the, the cheery words. Um, Martin Archer, um, Mud's Women in the Colonies. It was one of the best written and most iconic ST episodes, it, Star Trek episodes. It rings true because men have always been the oil rig worker, the deep sea diving welder, the construction worker, the miner, etc. Women came along afterwards in a gold rush for husbands or for fortunes that might be made as prostitutes. I'm sure you want Star Trek references and tributes all throughout the series. Mud's Women is one of the best frontier episodes you could reference, but leave out the Venus drug plot point. If not, then which ST episode could be reinterpreted or heavily referenced for the colonies? Uh, I would prefer to do completely original stories, but I will come back to the point you're making here, Martin. Uh, I don't want to... I don't want to... This, this is why entertainment is so appalling now. Is there's no nothing new. Everything's just well, I'm going to re a take on this or an homage to that, or I'm going to do a soft reboot of this. Uh, but I, but your point is excellent. I'll come back to a second. Also here he says. Also I cannot recommend the eight episodes of the series 1883 highly enough. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Frontier pioneers are the most challenging situations that I've ever seen depicted on screen, and more moving than you'd think it was possible in such a short series. Ask the live stream audience. Anybody seen? Um, 1883, I have never heard of it. Uh, but this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm looking for when we're talking about dis distributing this show and making it essentially a an open source science fiction series. So 1883, perfect. Now on to Mud's Women. Um, yes, this is... Uh, everybody's saying it's awesome. So... so uh, all right, so I'll check it out. This is the thing that's going to be controversial uh, because everything, everything that people hate about woke values in entertainment, they hate because all of it is based upon a lie, right? There's a 
Wakanda Forever is coming out, and and I don't think it's going to do very well. And when it doesn't do very well, it's going to be because how racist we are. But, you know, I, I'm not really particularly interested in seeing a long line of, of, of bald African women with spears as my, um, you know, if, I, if I've got... If I've got, if I'm not hearing back from, um, from, um, oh, what's the name of the planet? Ah, my mind is going. The, the alien planet. If I'm not, if, if I lose the signal from this planet, something, 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 and I've got a choice of sending Marines in an APC or a bunch of, you know, black chicks with shaved heads, uh, and, and handheld weapons. LV, yeah, thank you. LSV-426. Was it LSV? I thought it was LV. Anyway, yeah. So, okay, you know, make, make whatever you want to, but but this female warrior thing's based on a lie. And I was looking at movie trailers, and, um, and in fact, I have a, this week's Moving Back to America is about, about how much of the content that's coming out now is based upon a lie. LV-426, yeah. So we lose the signal from LV-426. What should we do? Grab the bald women. And, and, and give them a couple of blades and send them on out there. Uh, it's a lie. And after I saw the preview for Wakanda Forever, I saw a, a trailer for another movie, which is this cubed, called uh, The Woman King. And it's about, and, and it's apparently about a group of female warriors in Africa taking on the Europeans in the, in the colonial days. And... Uh, and it features a lot of shots of uh, of these women beating up these you know Europeans who are holding rifles, and they're coming at them with machetes. And it's like okay, so so we're not going to have uh, women warriors. Now this is an important distinction. I am one hundred percent going to have the mother on this uh, frontier thing have to grab a shotgun and do things. Uh, that are going to be impressive, but she's going to do it because she has to do it, and she's not going to do it because she wants to do it. She's not going to go out there and kick ass. Somebody's there, and husband's on the other side of the planet. Okay, somebody's got to go out there and defend the place, and mom's going to do it. That's true. It's true. This woman warrior thing is false, and when and when you see the the Marines in in the colonies clear in a room. It's going to be all male, and they're all going to be young male, and they're going to be fit males. And and when people say, because I'm going to hear it, why aren't there any women here? It's be, well, the reason is because there aren't any women warriors out there. When I say warriors, I mean tip of the spear gunfighters. I have friends and respect highly, highly respect women I know who are, who are helicopter pilots in the military, the woman who was a damage control officer on board uh, the uh, USS Spruance uh, was just blew me away with how competent she was. She was five foot one and probably a hundred pounds soaking wet, but she really knew her stuff, and I was very impressed. It's not a question of, oh gee, I don't think women can handle this. It's a question of when you're talking about this kind of stuff, it's exclusively men. Because you have to carry people out of there sometimes, right? And they're faster and they're stronger. They, it's just, it just when you're talking about the tip of the spear, you can afford to be so selective. Um, so um, in any event, uh, it, it's going to be real. 
so what Martin's saying here is is exactly right. That's what the that's what the frontier was, and what the frontier will be is it will be extremely male heavy, male dominated because it's going to be dangerous and uncomfortable. And as a general rule, I'm not saying there aren't any women that sign up for dangerous and uncomfortable, but I am saying that if you took a look at somebody and you put an ad in the paper and said, uh, we've got something uh, coming up, it's adventurous, however, it's going to be dangerous and extremely uncomfortable. I guarantee you that 95% of those applicants are going to be males. I guarantee it. So, um, for some reason, and just as a quick aside, because that's what the show's about, is watching me wander off the, you know, get, get beached on the rocks of the stream of consciousness. In, on the, in the um, comment section, Quibo says, uh, adamantium and vibranium are different, but, they're, but we're the same originally. We're the same originally. The reason that caught my eye is because I'm thinking about, okay, so I've got real-world physics. That means that I've got rockets that are basically, well, they're nuclear rockets. The simplest nuclear rocket takes a uranium core. It's what they built at Nerva. Basically, this cylinder of uranium, with all these holes in it, and you run liquid hydrogen through it, and the uranium heats up the liquid hydrogen, and out comes the, um, the uh, expansion of gas out the other end, and it has a very high uh, specific impulse, which means that you get a lot of energy per, per pound of fuel. That's an engineering problem. So all you have to do is make that hotter and hotter and hotter, and you get more and more and more efficiency. So far, so good. There was something called the, the, the Alien's Handbook. It was put out by an individual guy, British guy, and it was a manual for the space marines written entirely in character. It's one of my favorite pieces of science fiction ever. It is so damn well written. It's so good. But he was talking about the drive for the, um, for the Sulaco. And he wasn't commenting on it. It was like, here's an engineering, engineering manual on, on how the, you know, the, the J293s or whatever power the Salaka. And um, Kuiba says, I want to do 3D space. I want to see 3D printers in space, Bill. I want to see 3D printers everywhere. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. I want to see this thing just building these structures. Um, anyway, uh, so in, in this handbook, the reaction mass was diamond dust. It was it was industrial diamonds that were ground into the ground so fine, like a flower almost, so fine that they could you could treat them as a liquid and, and, and pump them. Diamond dust, because you wanted as much energy out of the thing as possible. I thought, that's fantastic. That's just really, really good. And that led me to a thought, like, okay, if it turns out that you really gonna take something and heat it up and you want and you want the reaction of it. It seems to me you would want the most dense material you could get. That seems to me to be the, the best way to go. I might be wrong about that, but that seems logical. So I said, okay, so what would that be? Would that be lead, uranium? It's osmium. Once again, here we are, right? It's not unobtainium and 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 God bless you, Gene, and it's not dilithium. Osmium is an actual element. It is the densest material. There are a couple of unstable transuranium elements that are denser than osmium, but their half-life is a second or two or a couple of milliseconds. So osmium. So people say, well, osmium, what do you mean? We've got to tank up our osmium. For everyday travel, for, you know, 
routine travel, just going to use hydrogen. Hydrogen's everywhere. Just dip into the atmosphere, suck some up. Hydrogen, boom. But if you've got a, if you've got a, either a military ship or something that has to go interstellar at sublight speeds, you're going to not care about the price. You're going to care about performance. And and when you care about performance, you're going to have you're going to have an osmium drive. You're going to have osmium tanks because that carries the most momentum out of the engine. And that's a perfect example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? Is it unobtainium? No. Is it is it is it dilithium? No. Is it you know is it what? No, it's osmium. Osmium. Google it. Osmium. The densest element, the densest stable element, in the periodic chart. Yes, and Mobile Moto points out unobtainium was always a joke, and 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 for um, for Cameron to use that. That was that, and using that papyrus font for Avatar Wars, just plain horrible, unforced errors. Um, so anyway, uh, atomic number 70, 76. Let me put on my cogitating spectacles. Yes. Well, that's a handy coincidence, isn't it? We're talking about the, the, uh, the telling the story of America in the future, you know, I'm going to make it as far into the future to the year as as it is in the past. So, osmium is element 76. That's kind of got a cool thing to it. Um, it might be very expensive. I know gold was up on the list in terms of density, but osmium, uh, if, if it's valuable, you just manufacture it. Uh, Fire Uweko says, I was the one that hated Avatar. I have to tell you, Fire Uweko, at least with this crowd, I'd be much more impressed if you were the only person that actually liked Avatar. I, I, Avatar is just one of the worst films ever. It's beautiful, there's no question. But it's it's just one of the worst films ever. And there's a trailer out now for Avatar 2, The Way of Water. And these authentic natives are, you see the humans, which apparently have been kicked out of the last one, now they're now they're now we're just building stuff and we run the, and now we've got Avatar warriors out there because we're evil. You see, we're come to get the unobtainium. And um iridium is almost as dense. Exactly. See? Now we're having an actual scientific conversation based on a line, a throwaway line that somebody uses in a science fiction show. This is how it works. This is how Star Trek produced. That's how this turned into this. Right? See how it works? That's how it works. That's what inspires people. You see it when you're a child, you're seven or eight years old, and you want to do it, so you so you do. Um, okay, so, uh, so back to the to the to the Muds Women thing. That is a really, really interesting dynamic, that frontier dynamic. The first people out there are going to be men, and they're not only going to be men; they're going to be uh, loners. They're going to be weird men. They're going to be like, like um, uh, Leo's uh, DiCaprio's character in The Revenant, which is a terrific movie I like very much. They're going to be like trappers and scouts and stuff, and then it's going to follow pretty much a wave of exclusively strong young men who are going to build the things, like going to build the cabins, and we're going to build this. And once the actual housing is in place. Then the first women will start to arrive, and they will start to humanize this place, start to turn it into a place for humans to live in instead of for bachelors to live in, and that's a that's a, a tough thing. There's a, a line that I heard many, many years ago. Uh, an American woman, 
was asked what it's like to be an Alaskan because the men outnumbered the women in Alaska at least 20, 30 years ago by three to one or something. And they asked this woman, what's it like to be a woman in Alaska, meaning with all the excess men around? And she said, well, the, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. And that's the story of the frontier, if you're a woman, right? The odds are good, but the goods are odd. These are, these, these are, these are not romantic devils. But, again, this is what good storytelling is. When I was doing America's Forgotten Heroes, the first one I did was John Paul Jones. The second one I did was Frank Luke. So Frank Luke was a badass, just a, just a, a, a killing machine, right? And, and when I'm looking at his childhood, it turns out he's, he's like an all-star uh, uh, fullback. Great, that makes sense. And he got into fistfights in the mines because he was working in the mines in Arizona. And that makes sense. And all of this stuff is making sense. And, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he decides he wants to make some money. So he, instead of opening a bar or a brothel, do you know what this tough, tough, tough guy did? Well, if you saw the episode, you know. He opened a dance studio. He opened a dance studio because he had lived with the miners. And the miners were so desperate for, thank you, Infidel, uh, the miners were so desperate for companionship that they were that they were willing to take dancing lessons to improve their chances of, of finding a wife. And Frank Luke, this kid who's beaten up miners underground, you know, just beating them up. Prize fighter, bare knuckle prize fighter. Frank Luke opens a dancing hall and Frank Luke gets into a dress and dances with these men to teach them how to dance so that they have a better chance of, um, of attracting a wife. That is the kind of story that I think I would love to tell. All the science and all the background stuff is just picture framing. That is a fantastically cool story. Fantastically cool story. And the goods are odd. I mean, the odds are good and the goods are odd is a good storyline. What, you know, what do you do with that? How do you feel if you're if you're a woman? You're going to go out there into this lawless place, right? Well, first of all, if you're going to go out into this lawless place, you're not going to be um, putting men down because there's no 911 to call. You're going to be respectful and you're going to be nice and you're looking for a respectful man who's going to treat you well. And all of a sudden, we're back to reality. We're back to reality. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week when we were doing uh, right angles for last week. Scott had a show and said, "What does victory look like? What, if conservatism completely wins, what does it look like?" And he said, "Do you have an idea, Bill, or is it just kind of like now, except without those people?" And I said, no, "That's it. The colonies is going to show us what life is like without those people, without the without the Karens, without the without the." The lunatics, without all the politicians, the, 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 the regulators, it's going to show what life is like without those people. Because those people don't go out and do dangerous and uncomfortable things. They try to take the money from the people that do go out and do dangerous and uncomfortable things. And that's what the frontier story is about, especially the frontier story. What is life like without those people? I went to Texas for Thanksgiving the year before I met Natasha. And... And my, I did an afterburner on this. During my entire three days there, there wasn't an hour that went by when I didn't say either to myself or out loud, you're allowed to do this? Yeah, 
you're allowed to just go out back and shoot skeet into the over the river in, in your backyard? Of course. They're not going to have like a SWAT helicopter overhead into it? No. And there, there's a house right there. Of course there's a house where they shoot skeet too. And we put a bonfire. We have a bonfire here. You just have a bonfire in your backyard. They let you do that. They let you do that. They let you do that. That's how per pervasive this this cult is. And and that's what the frontier family is going to be saying. They're going to say, we're allowed to do that? Yeah. Where are you going to go? Well, where can we go? You can go anywhere you want to. It's none of my business. I don't have time. I don't have time for this. Just go. Was there a speed limit or something? <laughs> The speed limit is, yes, how fast can you drive without, without killing anybody? That's the speed limit. Now, get out of my way. No one has seen this, guys. And this is, this is really ultimately how you win voters, is you show them a world that they've never seen before, and it's got all of this cool glitz, but, but you make them think about it. You show somebody driving a car with the top down, listening to music, and you show them what it's like to have automobile freedom. You know, you, you take a guy who's grown up in a city and he's had to get to work in, in these travel pods, you know, these publicly owned, boxy, slow, self-driving pods, and you put him in the seat of a, of a, of a convertible 66 Stingray and you go down this highway at high speed and you watch watch the expression on his face. That's how that's how it will work. So so you're, you're absolutely right about that, Martin. Um, these are the kind of questions you have to ask yourself. When I was asking myself what, what I know that the frontier father is going to be a hydrologist. He's going to, he's on earth in Los Angeles. He's working for a, a company and he's, 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 He's not even got an engineering degree. He's just got a lot of experience with high-pressure water systems. And he's convinced that uh, he's self-taught. He's convinced that he can make a living finding water, drilling wells, and plumbing it for people out there. He can make enough money finding permanent water supplies rather than having to get shipped in, even though you recycle all of it. So, um, so that's what he's going to do. But he's going to get out there, and he's grown up in LA, in LA and he's constantly for the first time going to be saying we can do that yeah yeah just go well you know what about this can I, I mean I don't really have a license or anything so what's a license stop wasting my time you know well, how will we know if the guy's any good if he doesn't have a license well if he's not good at what he does he'll be frozen solid outside of his head because he'll starve to death and if he's got a line outside, the chances are he's pretty good at what he does. See how simple it is? Stop wasting my time. That's the tone, uh, and that's what it's going to be like. And, and I'm telling you, two generations are going to really, really dig this. He's a water witch. Yes, exactly. As, uh, the term I'm going to use is a water boy. Uh, and, um, and I'm going to give him a, a, a funny name for this. Uh, I've got a, a, a group of free traders, and, and th th this is the story of how they build up their company. Uh, it's a separate storyline than the Frontier storyline. And they start out in a relatively small ship, and the relatively small ship's called the Mary Sue. Um, so, yeah, so that's it. This is the dynamic. And, and, and when we talk about these Stargate lines, I want to do research on how, how did railroads, how did it, 
develop. I know the basics. I know that the government funded uh, one, a couple of these railroad lines, and then some guy basically started his own private line, which was so much more competitive that it put the government lines out of business. And, and, and all of this stuff really happened. So if it really happened once, it's going to happen again. Um, how, do, um, how do container ships? What's the protocol for container ships coming into and out of um, Port of Los Angeles? Because when you've got really cool spaceships, you always see them heading towards the planet. Okay, well, then what happens? Well, we go into orbit. Sweet. Then what? Well, then a miracle happens and we find ourselves on the planet's surface. Yeah, okay, well, if you're bringing in cargo, you've got to put it someplace. And if you've got a vacuum-only ship, right, that's not atmosphere capable, then you have to take your cargo to someplace, unload the cargo, get paid for it, and then that guy is going to sell the cargo to a guy who's got an atmospheric vehicle, and that guy's going to take it down to the surface, and then somebody on the surface is going to put it in a truck, and that, this is how it goes. So so all of all of this stuff, um, where she says, Bill, how will you handle the character religions and references to our own era's pop culture, like how people enjoy uh, Rena fairies? Uh, there are not going to be any aliens in this. There'll be plenty of aliens. There just won't be any intelligent aliens. The, the more uh, I look, the more convinced I become that, that, that uh, intelligent life is, is, is so unlikely. We talked about this last time, I think, last episode. So even if, even if there are other intelligent star-faring species out there, the idea that their tech level would be exactly the same as ours, you know, just exactly the same. We got phasers and the Klingons got disruptors. And do, oh, oh, the Romulans, look at that. Here's another, here's another civilization that we happen to meet at exactly the right time. And we're all three equal. If we, if we encounter another species, intelligent species out there, they're either going to be dressed in animal skins or they're going to be invisible uh, and, and do with us whatever they will. So, okay, so if you take out if you take out aliens, so, so you you no longer have, and Star Citizen is just terrible. This is so unoriginal. Chris Roberts, whatever you want to say about the game, is is a, is not a a deep guy in terms of originality. He just steals stuff. So in Star Citizen, as an example, you've got the turtle people, you've got the bird people, you've got the reptile people, and in Traveler there were the the wolf people and there were the lion people. And they're, uh, they're bipeds, they're humanoid, they had a head here and arms, but they might have different number of fingers. And, and I'm just tired of it. It's, no, I'm not going to do it. So, okay, great. Now we get back to the fact that this is not a, a, a lecture, it's a, it's, a, it's a drama. So you have to have conflict. So, so who are you fighting? You have to have a villain. Well, on some level, you're fighting the Chinese because that's who we're fighting today. And they're doing the same thing in space that they're doing here. They're basically not playing by the rules, okay? And you've got your own government that you're rebelling against. And in this case, it's going to be a government that is just nothing but bureaucracy and nothing but spending and nothing but taxes, and it's time to go. It's time to go. we got to go. But you also want, if you're doing a science fiction show, you want alienness. And I, I've got it somewhere on a CD, but... Nearly 20 years ago, 15, 17 years ago, I saw a rendering 
of a creature had human eyes and it, and it had like a hole here for the nose and and in it and it it looked human but it was also at the same time absolutely terrifying it was just really horrifying and i realized uh, okay so that's it so to answer your uh, the question in the comment section, we'll get back to Facebook eventually. Um, in, the, in the future, I'm going to, subject to change, but I've been thinking about this a lot. There's basically going to be three branches of humanity, not just the nationalities and not just the mega corporations, three different kinds of people. It's going to be stock humans, which is the people we're going to follow. They're going to be the cybernetic humans that are going to have all of these technological um, improvements that are believable and then there's going to be the genetic guys the ones that have decided that they are going to engineer themselves to the environment rather than the other way around and those people are going to be freaky 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 just as a thought give you an idea lines i'm thinking here is if you there there's a there was a, a novel out called the, Chem the Chemically Pure Warriors, I think, and it was about a group of soldiers who, who had to go down on, everywhere they went down, on, had to wear a spacesuit because they had been born in space, lived and died in space. They had no natural immunity to anything. So if you have a, a, a group of people that decide, you know, we're all out here looking for a planet, but rather than finding a planet like Earth, wouldn't it just be easier to make us like living in small metal containers? Wouldn't that be easier? So they start messing around with their own um, genetics and they breed themselves into creatures. And, and as an example, you don't really need a nose if you live in an air-conditioned tube, right? This is designed to, to trap dirt particles. It's designed to keep the rain out. It's designed to produce a mucous membrane that protects you against bacteria. But if you live in a sterile environment, you don't need a nose. You just have a hole in your face or you have something else there, right? Uh, one of the things that Arthur C. Clarke wrote about was he talked about a, a guy up there in, in, in orbit who had lost his legs and he was actually much more capable than everybody else. He said, look, the legs are just like 40% of my body weight that don't do me any good. So you take that to its logical conclusion, you'll find humans who have arms here and then down where their legs will be, there'll be another set of arms. Pretty simple, genetically. And so now you get to have body horror and, and body horror is really cool that's what alien and aliens essentially is is oh my god this thing is repulsive yeah we'll, we'll have repulsive antagonists in this we'll have antagonists that, that look terrifying not just with a, you know not, not these aliens have brow ridges this way and the other aliens have a have a, a brow ridge here otherwise they look exactly like anybody down in a casting uh, uh, studio so Anybody come up with an idea for a mutation that's possible, why? If you can answer the why, I'll give you the technology is practically there. Assume that you could do anything genetically. What's the weirdest, grossest, creepiest thing you can think of? And why would somebody do that? And if they do that, what are their objectives now? Now, now you start to get the power of this crowdsourced idea. Um, okay, uh, moving on. Uh, Jason Hatfield. Hey, hail Bill. Hail, hail Jason. 
You mentioned in a previous episode about a highly elliptical orbit for the planet for your settlers in your colonies series. In Dan Abnett's first 40k Eisenhorn book, Xenos, his adventure starts out on such a place. The planet is so far out in the solar system, the inhabitants have to hibernate in special chambers until the planet warms back up again. Worth the read if you have the time. Okay, thanks, Jason. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, I've read every one of the 60-plus novels in the Horus Heresy thing. I've read all of the Siege of Terror books. Dan Abnett wrote the first 40K novel I ever saw. And Dan Abnett is in a class by himself. He is, he is uniquely talented. And the reason I'm feeling blue over your question, Jason, is because I read Xenos about a week before I decided I wanted to do this. I just stole it. Yeah, that's just that simple. Uh, I just stole it. Now, fortunately, I'm aware of highly elliptical orbits, and I had been thinking about the idea about a planet that had temperature extremes, but when I read, when I read about this, I said, yeah. Now, here's another great example of the thing that we talked about earlier with Quibo. It's like, just make it look cool. Don't worry about the science. Well, so this is a perfect example. So to see if I could get this to work, a couple weeks ago, I went into Space Engine, and I took the Earth, and uh, and I, uh, well, I did this first in Universe Sandbox. I took the Earth, and I replaced the G-type star with a, an F-type star, which is higher level of radiation, bigger habitable zone. And uh, and I started playing around with the orbits. So I took what I learned in in Space Engine moved it into, sorry, took what I learned in uh, Universe Sandbox, moved it into Space Engine, got the basics in Universe. So in Space Engine, I basically took uh, an, an Earth-like planet, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. How do you balance the science, and how do you balance the story? And it took me probably two hours. And in, it took me, and the pilot of Lost in Space, bless you, Quibo, because that's where I first saw the idea. That's when I first saw it. It wasn't Abnet. It was that First season of Lost in Space, which was so incredible, and they're in they're in the chariot, and it's going to get I can't remember if it's going to get hotter or colder, but but they have to they have to leave the Jupiter two and get in the chariot and 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 travel across an ocean. That's the first time I saw it. So everybody steals from everybody else. Um, so uh, I took this planet, and the software is doing the calculations for surface temperature. It's got calculations for the greenhouse effect on the atmosphere, how thick the atmosphere is, all of this stuff's all factored in. I give it a hotter star, and then I start playing around with the minimum and the maximum. What's the aphelion? What's the perihelion? What's the aphelion? What's the perihelion? And I can adjust these things. And as I make these adjustments, as I move the, the, the peri, keeps, yeah, perihelion uh, closer to the sun, it's going to get hotter there. And, and if it turns out that the planet doesn't get cold enough, then I'll move the, the far end of the orbit further out, and it gets more eccentric, more elliptical. And I just kept running it. And then finally, I got it where I want it. I thought about bringing that in today, but uh, just doing a quick recording of it. But this is a perfect example of, of how you square the circle. I know what I want. I wanted a planet that got killer cold, cold enough to kill you, but not unsurvivably cold if you just, you know, stepped out. It's not, not, not 250 degrees below zero, but 
but much colder than Earth. And, and on the inside of its orbit, I wanted it to be hot, but not, but hotter than LA in the summertime, right? I mean, I've been here when it's been 126 degrees. That was pretty toasty. I've been in Arizona when it was about that temperature. It was warm, right? But that's not science fiction. So in my head, now forgive me for this transgression, uh, and I'll have to atone for it later, but I decided to use Celsius for this because it's actually more useful when it comes to this kind of thing. And I, and I kept going back and forth with Fahrenheit. So the coldest temperature recorded on Earth, I want to say, is I think it's 165 below zero, something like that. Um, so I need a planet that gets down to 180, 190 degrees below zero Fahrenheit for a while. And on the hot side, I wanted it to get to about 160 Fahrenheit. Right? If you, if you go to... 212 or above, the water boils off. At 160, 170, it evaporates very, very quickly. Um, and and so I'm just playing with the parameters, and I'm running it. And 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 as I'm changing these things, I'm looking at the how cold does this planet get, and how hot does it get? It gets cold enough, but it doesn't get hot enough. I move the I move the perihelion in a little bit, and then I finally got it so that the cold Temperatures were right where I wanted them, and the hot temperatures were right where I wanted them. And that gave me an orbit, and that orbit gave me in, in, in three digits of how many astronomical units away from this is this is this orbit, and what is the eccentricity to two digits of, of accuracy. And so now I've got the science, and I've got what I want. Um, and yes, exactly right. Bart points out that boiling also has to do with the water temperature. And this is another kind of thing that I'd like to crowdsource out. If you've, got a, if you've got this world and there's a significant amount of water on the world because it's got relatively high gravity, higher than Earth, I'm thinking, because that'll be unpleasant. You know, not, not enough to make it crazy, but if it's 1.1 G, 1.2 Gs, you don't feel good. Eventually, you get much stronger, but at first, it's just like, oh, God, you know, you're carrying all this weight around. Um, so the planet's got enough gravity to hold on to an atmosphere, and I'm, and I'm thinking there's a fair amount of, of water on this planet, but the period where water is liquid in terms of its total year orbit, and I want to say the year was six six years, something like that, to, to do this orbit. The windows for liquid water are very narrow. On a highly elliptical orbit, one of the one of the Kepler's laws of planetary motion, see what I mean by having a little idea of what you're talking about, is that over any period of time, if you take 20 days of an orbit, those 20 days will always cover the same total area. What that essentially means is when you're close to the sun, the planet moves faster, that much area. When you're far away from the sun, it moves slower, and it's that much area, but it's longer. That's, that's one of the laws of planetary motion. So what that basically means is if you've got a planet like this, um, you've got a world that looks like this. They're gonna get there, this is an artistic decision on my part, they're gonna get there just as it starts getting cold. So when they get off the boat, it's gonna be cold, but it's gonna be reasonably cold. It's gonna be 40 degrees, maybe 30, 35, 40 degrees. Uncomfortably cold, but, but 
nothing worse than a than a than a winter in 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 any place other than LA or Florida. But they come as the planet is heading out, and as it heads out, it slows down, which means that the winter, if it's got a six-year orbit, the winter is probably four years of that. And then there's approximately a year on either side or less, probably a couple months, where things are enjoyable and pleasant. And then there's a short period of maybe several months where it is unlivably hot. So that's it. And then when you're watching the orbit, now, now you get really cool stuff to work with. Because it's freezing cold, then it warms up, it warms up, it warms up, and then as this thing starts heading in towards the sun, suddenly it starts to warm up faster. And then comes the first day when you can go outside without, you know, a pressure suit. And then comes the first day when you can go outside in, in sleeves and t-shirt. Then comes a couple of days or maybe a week where you can sit out and get some sun and just relax. It's warm, it's beautiful. And then it starts to get warmer. Now it's Los Angeles in August. Now it's now it's Phoenix in, in August. Now it is too hot to survive. We got to go lock in again. So, um, uh, okay. Um, so this is this is doing a lot of the lifting for telling the story. And they get on this boat just as it's starting to get cold. And that means that their first, I probably get them there a little warmer than what I said. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know, 50 or something. That means they're getting there and they've got a couple of weeks, maybe a month, to figure out how to live on this place. They've got, you know, the tech, they've got a, a, a rover. It's broken, but it's functional. And they've got about a month or two where every day it gets more uncomfortable and they have to figure out how they're going to survive on this thing and they have to make some friends real quick. And then you get a three-year winter so that most of this planet time, it's frozen. And then somewhere around season three or so, it's not frozen. And then suddenly this world that you've gotten to know for three, three seasons worth of episodes, now all of a sudden this frozen place is suddenly completely just just waterfalls of, of liquid water waterfalls of, of all of this permanently locked up ice is now melting and huge quantities and it's melting fast because the temperature is going up very 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 rapidly when this thing is coming in on the on the on the uh, perihelion that temperature temperature does this it's down here for the winter and then it goes and it goes woo and then it goes right back down again like that but during the that that close approach there's a, a little window going in where it's not only comfortable, it's pleasant. Is the planet lifeless? No, it's not, but we'll talk about that in a second. And then coming out the other way, as it starts cooling down, it's comfortable. And and around you go. So, so this is a great example of how getting the science right tells you enough about the story so that it it doesn't write itself. You still have to add a human story, but but it provides you with interesting fodder and interesting visuals. So if you see two, three episodes of this as a frozen planet, and then suddenly it's not, and then suddenly these frozen cliffs that you've seen are just these enormous waterfalls, and then all of a sudden, and, and this is a question I wanted to ask the hive mind. I can give you the temperature things. I, I really like the idea that all of this water essentially evaporates when I say instantaneously, I mean in the course of a couple of days, where where this 
this planet suddenly hits because it's on 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 the perihelion it's moving real fast it's getting hotter very 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 fast and it seems to me that if you had a, a planet with a lot of water on it most of the time the water's frozen then it's liquid then going to come a point when the temperature gets high enough that this huge quantity of water is going to evaporate at the same time and that would be cool would that be just like a would that be just like a steam seems like that's what it would be like now you're not losing the water it's not going to space you got a magnetic field and you've got enough gravity to hold on the atmosphere this is just the cycle so you got all this water suddenly it goes from frozen to liquid now you got these huge oceans which last for a couple weeks and then and then poof, now you've got a hundred percent humidity and it's 175 degrees outside and i've lived in florida so i don't need to know why to do that uh would this planet have a moon asked dave big booty and and again here we go here's the science I, I would love to have a moon but i say no and the reason i say no is because the only way to explain this orbit is for this to be a captured planet for this to be uh, uh a, a captured planet this is not uncommon there's a lot of highly elliptical orbits of, of asteroids and so on in our solar system most of the asteroids are in nearly circular orbits and if you look at the asteroids in the solar system, you'll see that the huge quantity of them, just a giant cloud that's rotating, they formed with the solar system. But a significant number of them are highly inclined, highly eccentric, and those guys are captured um, bodies. And the only way to explain this planet is for it to be a captured body. It'd be captured billions of years ago, but it, 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 it's, it's got a very, very high eccentricity. It's elongated orbit, and it's got a very high inclination. Um, so, uh, Dave says, wouldn't any planetary body's elliptical orbit eventually circularize? It would eventually, but depending on how elliptical it is in the beginning, this process could take, you know, billions of years. And this is the part of the story, this is the part of the adventure that is fun. As long as the science is correct, you can say, well, the planet would be circularized in 750 million years. I say, okay, so this thing was captured 200 million years ago. Ta-da! Uh, but just, 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 just handing the weather off to 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 you bright people, right? What would it look like? I I love the idea, and I'm going to stick with this one way or another. Half of this planet—it's a big planet. It's a little bit bigger than Earth, and Earth is a big planet, despite what Neil deGrasse Tyson may say. Um, so, for dramatic purposes. I thought, what is the most alien landscape I can do? What can I do in science fiction that hasn't been seen before? Well, I've seen ice planets before, uh, and I've seen jungle planets before. In fact, in uh, The Emperor's Empire Strikes Back, I saw both of them within about a 10-minute span of each other. So I know what ice planets look like. I know what jungle planets look like. I want to know, um, know what haven't we seen. We know we've seen planets that look like Mars. We've seen planets that look like the moon. And and this is a, again, it's a strange choice, but if you commit to the choice, it opens up things that are never, ever done before. I realized the only terrain that I've never seen in science fiction is a planet with no terrain. That's the only thing I've never seen. I've never seen a planet with no terrain. And if it turns out that you've got a planet that's got a whole lot of water and it's constantly in a state of flux in terms of gas, liquid, solid, liquid gas, I can imagine a world where there are essentially, since the 
essentially you think of it as a as a water world with a ocean that surrounds the whole planet to a depth of four feet. I can imagine a world where where that would I want half of the planet to be the, the giddy gap, right? Half of the planet is absolutely featureless. And Space Engine allows you uh, to land on these planets. Pretty basic, but it's still pretty cool. And I have done that a couple times. And when you're on a planet that is absolutely flat, now I'm not going to keep them there, but I have, I am going to have them go across it, and it's going to take a, a, a while. It's just actually, it's actually terrifying. I think I mentioned this last time we talked about this, that the German soldiers, when they invaded Russia uh, in uh, 42, 41, um, they, the, the German soldiers actually kind of went a little nuts because they would be, uh, they'd be on their trains or they'd be in their, in their, in their trucks and they would go for day after day after day for months, and the and the terrain wouldn't change. You know, it just wouldn't change. That's how huge these steps were out in out in uh, in Russia. So, so yeah. Now, if you got a situation like this, my feeling is okay. So you, you're gonna you're gonna put down a house, and you're gonna you're gonna prepare yourself for the cold. That's where you know eighty percent of your year is going to be cold and on the margins relatively comfortable. And then the question becomes, what do you do for the five months or seven months when it's unsurvivably hot? And I think the answer is, I think you move. And so that also, see, this is this is the process I'm trying to explain to you guys. This is how thinking things through provides you with interesting background to make good stories about. If you've got a planet like this orbit, then everybody's got their houses where they want them for whatever reason that they want them. But when the summer comes, there's only one place that provides a little relief, and that's the poles. So you've got the whole planet is dispersed across the surface of the planet, and most of the time they're hanging around the equator because most of the time this planet's very, very cold. They want to be on the warmest part of a cold planet. But when this thing starts to come around in its orbit, this, this belt of population, it's not a lot of people, but it's enough. Suddenly, all of them concentrate on the poles. And now you go from a, a world where your nearest neighbor is 40 miles away to one where, where your nearest neighbor is, is, you know, 40 yards away. And that's cool. It's cool to have a, a place up on the pole where all of a sudden these rovers are coming in and these temporary habs, everybody's got like a summer house there. It's still going to be hotter than 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 survivable but it's going to be you get 20 30 degrees down something like that uh, uh so who was it asked that uh gk master and what's the axial tilt there is no axial tilt on this is three degrees there's the seasons are not caused by the tilt they're caused by the orbit so you get the idea right so that's actually you know how it would work um and so jason uh just between you and me uh and all of you watching, and all of you who may be fans of this in the future, let's not mention Dan Abnett or um, or Xenos or any of that other stuff. Let's just go back to uh, the first episodes of Lost in Space where they get in the chariot and we'll all be happy. First time chat. Uh, Library Denison. Bill, I keep imagining the potential for fan fiction in your universe. You're building an infinite potential for storyline growth, but in a way that forces fans to deal with real science and real humanity. What a way to teach about life. Thank you very much, uh, library. And and I have to tell you, that's a that's the kind of comment I would remember 
Anyway, but for the first comet, that's that's really deeply appreciated. Yes, this is the plan, right? I mean, I'm not going to be around forever. I'd like to say I started this when I was 30, but I'm not. I'm starting when I'm 63, right? So I would like to think that this thing is going to go on after I'm not here. And if you if you build this thing, this universe, then it will eventually take care of itself. And and you know what? I just had a real real insight. A real insight. The colonies will follow the same pattern that Star Trek and Star Wars went, which is the same pattern of civilization. You start off with a highly ordered system where the rules are the rules. And over time, all of the storylines get essentially get written and then over time the rules get laxer and, and less and less stringent until finally the thing just dissolves into chaos and anarchy. The the journey from Star Trek original series in in uh, 66 to uh, Picard or, or uh, you know Discovery is the journey of entropy. It gets less and less and less interesting because it because you keep opening up what it can do so get worse and worse writers and that's just the way it's going to go but hopefully somebody will shoot it in the head before it gets to that point um but that's that's kind of weird because that is exactly i never thought about that before but watching star trek and star wars is is like watching how civilizations decay it's, there might be some some there might be something worth thinking about in that. I'll take a look at that. All right, here we go. Um, Eric Blake, Hail Vectron, Bill Whittle. Hello, Eric. Hail, Hail Vectron, and Hail, Hail Eric. By Vectron's Golden Claw, may we win every single seat open in November. I agree. Uh, here's the question on that. You mentioned that the betting pool suddenly isn't as solid as it was before on whether or not we'll both we'll, we'll win both houses of Congress. So when would you say things changed? It was it the alleged inflation reduction bill getting passed that strikes me as the most likely case because much as we like to talk about americans waking up truth is a lot of folks like to go by what mainstream media tells them whether we like it or not yes this thing scares me more than anything uh that is on the horizon out there now uh, i was feeling so confident i have a great deal of confidence in these betting pools for the reason that we talked about and the weight of the ox i'm not getting into that again but Last time I checked it, it was something like, you know, 87% chance of taking the House and 64%, 65% chance of taking the Senate. And then somebody said, the numbers are changing. And I went back and looked at it and it scared the daylights out of me. And now let's look at it again to see if it's worse or better. Uh, here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to do this because I, I, I have a lot of confidence in, in this as a predictive thing, much more than polls. Let's see what it says. That's not good. So it continues to narrow. Now we have a 73% chance of taking the house in it. Uh, and here's the graph for it. You can see the widest point was back in um, June or July. Can I get this thing, please? All right, I'll do, you want to be that way? I'll be this way, I'll just do it this way. So here's what, um, here's what the house looks like now, according to the betting pools. And I don't know what caused this. This is the question you're asking. I don't know the answer to it. But here's the house. 
that did that not work? Let's try it again. Did that work? You swine. Hang on. Okay. Uh, here's the odds on the house. And you can see it is getting worse fast. Still looking good in the house, but it's getting worse fast. What happened at the end of July? And now the Senate, this is the one, because I was sure we were going to do a sweep, and, and it was reasonable to be sure. Okay, we... God. Our chance of taking the Senate has gone down 2.6% in the last day. This is, this is bad news. Now, there's still plenty of time for them to screw it up and, and so on, but this really, really uh, worries me. So there's the Senate. I mean, there's the House. Here comes the Senate. Look at that. Look at that. That's insane. Barth's treasurer says that the, the debt forgiveness thing should kick that back in our favor. Um, yeah, I think the FBI raid had a lot to do with that. I really do. And I think that's why the FBI did the raid. Um, yeah, that's really, really, really disturbing. Okay, well, that's what happens when you get overconfident. Um, so... Let's see what we can do and, and do what we can. Uh, we'll find out. Eric says, what happened through June and July to change everything? I don't know. I honestly don't. I don't know. I can't think of anything. Um, yeah, people are going to vote Dem because of that. Um, I can't think of anything uh, that really explains it. Um, did we just get bombed again? Hey, we got bombed. Hey, everybody, how are you? Uh, welcome to um, uh, to the Stress Free Lounge. We've been talking science fiction and TV and all the other stuff. Uh, but uh, lately, uh, just in the last couple of minutes, we've been looking at the betting pools. And um, and for those of you who just showed up, hi, everybody. Uh, look at what's happened to the numbers. This is really, really, really disturbing. Uh, for those of you who just this second showed up, welcome. Uh, here's Here's the... I've talked about um, these betting pools. Historically, these things provide much, much, much more accurate information than polls because people have money in it. There's skin in the game, and you have a huge, huge sample of people. So back in end of June and July, you could see that we had a like a, what was it, an 87% chance of taking the House, and now it's down to 73% and dropping. And that's alarming, but this one is, uh, is terrifying. Um, there's the Senate. Look at look at what's happened since end of July. What's caused that? I think uh, OG man says it's gas prices. I think I think that's a, I think that's a lot of it. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I think as gas prices go down, people think, oh, okay, so they got this under control. They don't have it under control, and there it goes. Um, so anyway, and Marisha points out uh, for those of you who are new here, uh, we've been doing the Stratosphere Lounge show for man. Uh, almost 10 years now, something like that. Um, 
And mostly it's been politics, but lately we've been doing an awful lot of science fiction stuff because that's kind of where we're going. We've opened up a, a second channel, and um, on Monday nights at 6 o'clock we're going to be doing a stream that is nothing but pop culture, science fiction, screenwriting, uh, how to make movies in Unreal, all that stuff. So if you're uh, here for the first time and you want to come back on Monday night at 6, we'll be looking for you. Uh, we're going through the questions on Facebook here, so that's uh, that's where we were when you came in. It's good to see you. It's always nice to have one of these uh, giant rushes, and, and at first I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was frightened and confused, but uh, I eventually recovered my what's left of my sanity. Uh, here we go. Back, back to the questions. So these are the Facebook questions for the week. Um, moving on. back to all of them. Uh, Dave Olson is next. Hey, Bill, we're both old enough to remember when the big climate scare was global cooling. Then came the long, hot summer of 1988. And before you could say Oceania has always been at war with uh, East Asia, it became global warming. If you look at a graph of actual temperatures of the last 12,000 years, it looks like the profile of a roller coaster that I'd love to ride, but not one upon which I'd like to base government energy policy or commerce policy. It's becoming clear that human influence on the climate is somewhere between minuscule and negligible. Where do we start to undo 30 years of eco-propaganda, and when will this week's Moving Back to America be released? I guess you were there for the recording of that, Dave, because this week's Moving Back to America is called um, Go Save Something Else. Uh, I'm not talking about... Um, I'm not going to argue about what the temperatures are doing. That's not what I'm in doing in that particular article. What I'm saying is, is they are telling us that carbon levels are, four, last time I checked, 417 parts per million. And if it gets to 450, then, then it's game over. People genuinely believe that the earth is going to die and that everything's over and that the people are, are, are worried for the lives of their children if this carbon dioxide, dioxide level gets to 450 or something like that. And all I do in this video is say, hey, here's... Here's some science fact, okay? I'm not going to get into the argument about what's happening to temperatures now, but I will tell you that it is beyond dispute that 80, 60 to 80 million years ago, middle of the Cretaceous period, the carbon dioxide parts per million weren't 450, they weren't 500. The carbon dioxide levels 80 million years ago were between two and 3,000 parts per million. Two and 3,000 parts per million. And Sea levels were about two, 300 feet higher. That's not something I'm looking forward to or want. But the center of America, which is now just a, just a plain of grass, was an inland ocean with all kinds of life. And then the carbon dioxide levels dropped and everything froze and everything died. If you're looking at it from that side, getting colder is, uh, is bad. You want, you want all the SUVs you possibly can to keep it warm. Um, so... The argument I'm making is, is not even a global warming argument. It's the argument about how every single movie, we've been talking about science fiction all night, every single science fiction movie out there now and the ones that are coming and the ones that I've already seen, exactly the same in every single one of them. We have to go to this planet. Why? Well, because we've killed the Earth. Have we? Yes, we've killed the Earth because we're so awful, because of our horrible capitalism and our, and our, and our this and that. We've killed the Earth. And, and, and some of these... Uh, science fiction stories are about the earth fighting back, you know. Yes, we've done it. We've, we've finally done it. We've killed the earth. We've done it. We've done it. We've done it. We're evil, you know, meaning Western people are evil because we, you know, have antibiotics and air conditioning, and so therefore we're killing the planet. And this is the thing that keeps kind of um, going on. Hang on. 
political animals, we're talking about the betting pools, says, do you think it's possible that the betting pools have swung because many Trump candidates winning their primaries, the establishment will never support them, making them look weaker in the betting pools? That could be true. I don't know. Let's remember that the, those betting pools are based upon the entire, the, 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 I'm betting my money on this from across the entire population. Uh, so that doesn't mean, I mean, if you look at just conservatives, I would think that, I think that the enthusiasm has gone up. So it's not perfect, but in any event, I still don't like it. Um, so I, uh, so I talk about that. That's a, that's a historical fact. And at the same exact location, if you, if you put a, if you put a stop sign down in the middle of the country, 80 million years ago, carbon dioxide levels are 2,000, 3,000 parts per million. Temperature is 10 degrees centigrade warmer. That's some number warmer in real measurement. Uh, and you've got an inland ocean where Kansas used to be 80 million years ago. 80,000 years ago, you've got two miles of ice. Carbon dioxide levels are now down to about 160 parts per million. And if it gets much lower than that, then plants can no longer survive. And if the plants die, the feedback mechanism goes. So snowball earth is the, is the thing to be worried about. The more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, the, the better plants grow. And the more plants grow and the easier they grow and the more they, they not only grow faster, they grow with, uh, they need less water and they need less uh, nitrogen, less, less fertilizer. So as the carbon dioxide levels go up, the planet gets greener. The greener the planet gets, the more plants there are, the more plants there are that putting out the oxygen. So it starts to help itself. They say that, you know, it's, that there's, there's this whole global warming terrorization has been this idea. This is the point I'm trying to make, right? I'm, again, I'm not arguing about temperatures. We've been sold the idea that we are now doing something, we're going someplace that the earth has never been before. And they'll say, this is the warmest temperatures that we've recorded in 12,000 years. And some of them will say, it's the warmest it's been in 800,000 years, which is 1% of 1% of the total lifetime of the earth. The earth has had carbon dioxide levels of 3,000 parts per million, and they've had carbon and we've had carbon dioxide levels of 160 parts per million, and we weren't responsible for any of that because we weren't here. And my point is not whether or not we're affecting the climate. My point is, is this idea that we're going to kill the planet is absolute, totally, completely garbage. And so I don't just stay on, um, on the climate. I said, let's take another example. When I was a kid, I was told that nuclear war would not only, you know, vaporize me, but would be the end of life on Earth. How many times have you heard that, right? If you grew up in the Cold War like I did, if the bombs start dropping, that's it. The planet is over. Every single thing in the world is going to die. Okay. I did a little bit of math because I can, I can add. Um, the largest nuclear explosion ever um, ever performed on Earth, man-made nuclear explosion, was Tsar Bomba. It was a Russian hydrogen weapon that they detonated uh, high in the Arctic Circle. Tsar Bomba was the biggest bomb we've ever made. It was a 50 megaton bomb. That's a big bomb. The Chalutzalub impact, which killed the dinosaurs, I'm not saying that's a good day. I'm just trying to make a point. Chalutzalug impact, when it hit the Yucatan 60 million years ago, something like that, released as much energy as how many Tsar Bombas do you think? 
How many Tsar bombs do you think that that asteroid impact released? Not how many megatons. How many Tsar bombs do you think Chiluxalub generated? Thousand? Two thousand? Five million? Chiluxalub released as much energy as 200 billion Tsar bombas. 200 billion Tsar bombas. And while that was not a good day, and I'm not saying I want to see that happen, we lost two-thirds of the species on Earth, and, and if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. In other words, in other words, you can, you can hit the Earth with 200 billion of the biggest nuclear weapons ever made. Not 20,000, not 20 million, not 20 billion, 200 billion of them, and you will now still not be able to eliminate life on Earth. So relax, right? Just relax. You're really getting hysterical about things that you don't have to get hysterical about. I did the episode based on the fact that a thousand scientists signed a paper that said that the alarmism is uncalled for. They didn't say it's not happening. They just said there is no crisis. There is no existential crisis. It's all a lie. If it gets warmer, it gets warmer, and here's what's going to happen. But this point that this point in a return where we run away, run away a greenhouse effect, it, it just doesn't happen. Because if it if it did, if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. You see, this is my point. If the Earth can go from two thousand, three thousand, three it was three thousand. If you go from three thousand parts per per million CO two down to one hundred and sixty, without us being here, then whatever we are contributing in terms of carbon. Is it 20 parts per million? Is it 100? Okay, no one's talking about 100. They're talking about a difference of 20 or 30 parts per million. Make it 200. It doesn't matter. We have been there by a factor of 10, and, and the Earth does its thing, right? That's the point I'm trying to make, and that's the point that they can't refute. They will try to drag you down and say, well, you're a science denier and blah, blah, blah. I'm, saying, I'm not denying anything. I have my questions about the way this data is recovered, but my argument is independent of that. I don't care. Maybe you're exactly right. Maybe your worst-case scenario is exactly right. Maybe. Let's say it is. If it is, you're still looking at one-twentieth of the CO2 that was in the atmosphere 80 million years ago, and Earth was filled with life then. Okay? So, there you go. Um, uh, Eric Blake, Eric, you know what? I'm I'm sorry, buddy. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna just have to do new comments, and I think that's true for Martin Archer because it's already pushing three hours, and, and I'm feeling it. Did I, did I get a question from you already, Martin? Yes, I did. So I'm just gonna do the new ones. Uh, Kent um, Nebergall. Hi, Kent. Um, one aspect of frontier women then and now is that they're quick to grab a blade to take care of things like snakes and so on. This may be a topic we've already covered, but we'll see. My grandmother killed many with a garden hoe, and my girlfriend's mom in the Philippines routinely kills cobras and on and so on, even though she's very old and looks like you could knock her over with a feather. We just got a video of her beating a large crab that got into the house out by beating it with a board. By the time she finally gets it out of the room, legs are flying off. I love your grandmother, your girlfriend's grandmother already, or whoever it is. Uh, and that's only because I can't remember I, I a memory of a goldfish. Uh, 
by the time it gets legs are flying off, a good background arc may be that the women going from jumping on chairs to popping aliens with blades like swatting flies after a few years on the frontier. Yes. Yes. The, the point of showing the frontier in, in the colonies is to show people what you should be worried about, is to show people what is a genuine threat versus what is a, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown because I got the, 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 the almond milk instead of the soy milk that I asked for. That's basically it. And, and things like grandmothers, you know, chopping up snakes with, with rakes and hoes is fantastic. I think that that's that's what life has been for humanity. We are in this weird, freaky, weird period where we haven't had to go chop out snakes with with, with machetes. It's the first time in history we haven't had to do that, ever, right? Ever. And so now we've got all these people looking around. Oh my God! You're you're worrying about things that you are considering to be existential threats because there's nothing real to worry about. And so when you hear these SJWs saying, well, it was a literal assault. It was, a, it, was a, it was a literally a physical assault when he said, when he didn't use the right pronouns with me. That's a person who's never been assaulted. Right? Because if you had been physically assaulted, if somebody had beaten you up, you would not say something like that. If you'd actually been beaten up and somebody would smashed your face into the concrete and you had broken noses and all the bones in your eyes, you had to 15 reconstructive surgeries, next time somebody didn't use the correct pronouns with you, you may say it annoyed you, but you won't say it's exactly the same as a physical assault, which is what they're saying now. This is, this is, this is the world that we live in. This is the weirdness of the world that we live in. Uh, language is violence. No, it's not. Violence is violence, and you haven't been subjected to violence. That's how you can say something is stupid, right? That's how you can say something is stupid. If you get subjected to violence, and I, and I profoundly hope that you do not, but if you do, then you will know that you are using hyperbolic language in order to amp up your social score by showing what a great victim you are. Yeah, John Pershing's got it. This is a person who's never been punched in the nose. Bill Burr is brilliant, right? He's, he's, just, he's just brilliant. And, and he comes from a really unique place. He's married to a black woman, and it's... And, and it's and, and your instinct is to say, okay, so he can get away with saying the, the true things that he says because he's got that inoculation. He's, he can say, how can I be racist if I'm married to a black woman? I don't think it's that. I think it's that, I think it's that by being married to a black woman, he has seen both sides of the story often enough to know. And when Bill Burr talks about women, when he talks about the things about women, he's talking about the things about his wife not about his black wife, about his wife, about things that all women have in common. And Bill Burr gets more and more and more and more brilliant every, every time he comes out. I, I actually think that Bill Burr has the, best, has the best take on our society of anybody I know. Because Bill Burr understands that there are differences between men and women and there are differences between black and white people. And he is fair about it, but he doesn't pretend that they don't exist. That's the, that's the, the woke conceit. There is no such thing as, as this. There's no, of course there is. Of course there is. He'll make fun of this side, then he'll make fun of the other side. 
And and a classic example is you know it's the, the, women are like you know they like little like they just they just they just never stop they come and then you bounce them off like okay that's 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 true that's how it is but Bill Ball, Bill Barr will also say you know my wife just acts like she's perfect and stuff and 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 I and I'm killing it I'm crushing it I'm doing a great job the only thing she's got against me really is my personality honestly if it weren't for that then uh, then I'd be winning across the board that's true. That's true. And that's why he's funny, because it's the truth. Um, all right, now, I think that's the last of the questions, and I'm going to talk about something related to this, uh, Kent. So thanks for that question. Um, so, so I think Bill Burr is amazing. Now, I'll just close with this. Uh, I should probably throw a link to it if I can. I, I probably can. I can find it. Uh, I'll tell you somebody else who I respect enormously. And that is um, Dave Chappelle. Uh, Dave Chappelle is also telling the truth. And when somebody is is telling the truth, that's one thing. And when they're telling, I know this is a strange thing to say, when when they're telling the truth honestly, then that's even better. <laughs> yeah, Bart's Treasures is great. Bill's, my, my, I, I agree with Bill Burr's got a segment on why men make more than women. They don't make more than women. You can't hire a, a, an associate manager for sixty for thirty six thousand dollars a year for men, but twenty three thousand for a woman. If it's the same job, it's illegal. It's been illegal for decades. But um, uh, so, uh, but he says, you know why we make more money? It's because we do because because if uh, I happen to find myself on a luxury liner and it starts to go down, you get to go in the lifeboat and the kids get to go in the lifeboat, and I have to stand here. That's why I, I, it's a dollar an hour surcharge, he said. Perfect. Perfect, 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 perfect. Let me go, let me go on to close the show with this. So I was listening to some of Dave Chappelle's new, new stuff, and Chappelle was talking about the trans thing and, and so on and so forth, and, and he's telling the truth. But the next thing in the queue in, in, in YouTube was, was from an earlier Chappelle, uh, and, and it was Dave Chappelle talking for 17 minutes, and he didn't tell any jokes during that 17-minute period. And that's the most remarkable thing I've seen in, in quite a long time. Dave Chappelle is sitting on a stool. I think he's smoking a cigarette in this one. And he's talking about what happened to him with the Chappelle show. And he's not pulling any punches. Basically, he's saying he signed a contract because his agents advised him to, and that meant that he didn't own any of the, the Chappelle show. He didn't own any of it. And when he's recording this, he's saying, I don't own any of it. I don't get a penny from it, right? Because I signed this contract that was 40 pages long on the advice of somebody who's supposed to be watching after him. They weren't. And he goes on and on and on about it. He talks about people, he talks about people stealing from him. He talks about people stealing his jokes. He talks about, about just, he, he, he talks about a th uh, like a th game of three card Monty and how he tried to say this is all fake. And the guy said, the guy who was running it practically threatened to beat him up. He said, don't ever get between a man and his, and his, and his meal ticket. And, and Chappelle has a 17 minute thing where he tells the truth about the entertainment business. That's simple. I've been in the entertainment business for uh, 35 years now. I'm not active in it, but I've flowed around it. And for 20 years, I was a 
I was an editor in Hollywood. And when he talks about the entertainment business, it is the most riveting, powerful, moving 17 minutes I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, yeah, I'm going to censor it here because I gave it some thought. Chappelle has a line. He says, he says, they've been doing this to artists from the beginning. It's, he said it's very much like the, YouTube, the, the Me Too movement. That's been going on from the beginning, too. This using women as, as props and pawing them, and here's the deal. You want to be in the movie? And, you know, see downstairs. And he had a line, and I'm going to really weaken the line only because I don't want to repeat it verbatim. But he's, he's pretending he's talking to the Me Too movement, and he says, you don't like the way they fornicate. I don't like the way they eat. And I thought, oh, my God, the way they eat, man. Dave, that's exactly right, the way they eat. So this thing was recorded a couple years ago, and Chappelle says at the end of this, he says, look, I'm not calling for a boycott or anything like that of a network. There are plenty of other shows on that network. Those people work hard and they want to get paid too. He says, but as a favor to me, could you just boycott me? Could you just, just me? Don't hurt anybody else. Could you, could you boycott me? Could you not watch the Chappelle show? Because they stole it from me and, and it's not fair. It's not right. It may be legal, but it's not right. And it's this huge round of applause. And then after that was over, I thought, my God, the power of this. And then I did a little more research on it the next day, and I found out, yeah, this was a couple years ago. And when he did that, when that got out, they gave him his money. They basically, they were so humiliated by it that they actually did what they should have done in the beginning. And I don't know, they gave him all of it, but they gave him a reasonable share of, of his show. Chappelle was so was so pissed off about what how they were treating him that he walked away from fifty million dollars. That's what the final offer to keep him on on Comedy Central was, which I think was Viacom. He said fifty million dollars. I walked away from because I thought it was wrong. And I was like, dude, I, I I I would love to. I'd love to count you as a friend. I'm just proud to be the same countryman as you. One hundred percent. Yes. I'm a, I'm a conservative and I'm a capitalist and I believe in free market and I believe in all this stuff. I also believe personally, believe that if you sign a contract, then you're responsible for the contract, right? You, you, th this is what being an adult is. With all of that said, with all of that said, what they did to him was, may have been legal, but it was wrong. It was wrong. He was making fortunes for people and they had, and they had tricked him out of it. He talked about this game of three-card Monty because he he was watching. He walked up on this. It's a street game, right? This is on the streets of New York. It's, you know, this sleight of hand kind of thing. They sometimes do it with, like, you hide a nut under a cup or something, and you guess where it is, and, and you always will be wrong because it's not under any of those. You think, well, it's under this one, it's under that one. No, it's not under any of them. When you pick the nut or the cup that this ball is hiding under, he opens it up and shows, nope, there's nothing there, and there's nothing here, and it's here. But it was never there. It's all sleight of hand. He puts it there as he turns it over. There is no way to win that game because there, because when those three things are laid out, there is no ball under any of those things. That's why you can't win. But, and he pointed out this, 
it took me a while to get the point he was making. But he told the story in the middle, and he said, so I went up, there was this game of three-card money, and I'm looking at this, and everybody is, like, cheering on, and somebody just won, like, a big hunk of money, you know? Somebody, oh, my God, you know, this guy just won, you know, 400 bucks or whatever. Big money for him at the time. So he goes up and, and, and decides, I'm going to play, right? So he goes up and he plays, and he puts some money down there and so on, and they do this thing. With, and, and he said, it took all the money I had, which was money. He had a girlfriend coming over. I think he said, I got a hot Dominican, Dominican chick coming over, so I'm going to have to entertain her for a weekend in New York on $80. But I thought I'd, I mean, I just saw some guy walk away with a win. How hard can it be? I'm going to put the $80 down on the on the game of three-card money, and then I'll have 160 bucks or whatever. So he's standing in line, and everybody's cheering, and then he, then he plays the game, and he loses. And now he's got no money. And he stands back and watches this. And then, then he realizes the people who have been cheering and the people that won the money are all part of the scam. They're all in on it. That's when he, that's when he got angry. When he realized that the reason he decided to play was because he saw somebody win. That person didn't win. That was part of the setup to get... Chappelle's money and all these people cheering him on were also part of it they were in on it too and that's when he got angry and he got so angry that the next guy who came up he started screaming hey man the whole thing's a scam they're all in on it every one of them that's when the guy running the thing said to him don't make me hurt you don't get between a, a man and his uh, meal ticket so what Chappelle's point was it took me a while to put it together but, but Chappelle's point was the reason that I don't own any of the Chappelle show is because the lawyers who were supposed to be protecting me allowed me to sign a contract that I didn't understand and I couldn't understand, and, and he's right about that. It's, it, it is not, these end user agreements are not, in, they're designed to be unreadable and unintelligible. But what Chappelle said was, it was only after I realized that, I, that they'd taken my entire show and I hadn't gotten anything I've been ripped off exactly like at the at the three card money thing, and for the same reason, everybody was in on it. Meaning, the, the the negotiators on the Comedy Central side and the negotiators on the Chappelle side because they got paid up front. Um, so it's not like Marisha says always read your contracts before you sign them. It's not that he didn't read them. It's just that his agent or his attorney let him down, either intentionally or not. Doesn't matter, you know, and and so. He kept saying, so the contract said I had to do this, the contract said I had to do that, the contract, because I signed it, because I signed it, because I signed it. And to his credit, Chappelle, at no point Chappelle says that it was wrong. At no point does Chappelle say I should be allowed to get out of the contract. What Chappelle is saying is I signed a contract and I have to follow the consequences of signing the contract. So he's not getting out of signing the contract. He's just saying that the contract was written in such a way as to be deceptive because what they're doing is is evil. They're taking all of his stuff. He doesn't even he doesn't even get to keep the name. He said, I can't even go someplace and do the show on, on YouTube. I can't call it the Chappelle show because they own that. And and so I thought, wow, I, I'm gonna link to it. It is it is a if you really, really want to understand what show business is like, you need to listen to this. And not just because of what he says, but because of how he says it. When you, when you hear the anger and the pain in his voice that he had to go through for years and years and years of dealing with this evil, 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 evil system, it, for me, was really, really tremendous. And I'll, and I'll put a link to that uh, below. 
Um, and and like Bill Burr, I, I think I'd like to hang with Dave Chappelle. I don't care what his politics are. I've heard Bill Burr's a liberal. I find that hard to believe, but in any event, okay, whatever. Um, but uh, man, so he did this special and it shamed the people into giving him some of his show back. Shamed them into it. And he said, I, I, look, I'm the only guy with the balls to talk about what, what really goes on here. So let me tell you what happened to me. And here are some names. He didn't, I don't think he named individual executives, but he named Comedy Central, he named Viacom. Um, and uh, it's just very powerful. So anyway. Um, so uh, I'm going to do one more just because I see it. It's Eric, it's Eric Blake's question. And just because we talked about it last week, and this is it. Uh, Eric Blake, uh, live long and prosperous. This is what a live long and prosper image of Eric Blake. Um, this question I wrote up a couple of episodes ago for fairly obvious reasons. I got to say your passion about Jack the Ripper inspired me to buy cutting, the Cutting Point book myself. I'm holding it in my hands as you read this now. I don't know what the rest of the question is going to be, but... Uh, I'd been interested in Jack the Ripper my whole life, and then I'd read this book about explaining how it was a... a he solved the case. It's no question he solved the case, and, and all you have to do is read it to know he solved the case. And I talked about it on a Stratosphere Lounge a couple of weeks ago when I did the some of the AI art that I'd done on by typing in Jack the Ripper and other things, and here's what the computer's generating. And then I heard from from uh, Christer Holgen, Holmgren, who's the author of the book. He wrote me, and I wrote him back. We exchanged a bunch of emails. Um, and... Uh, and I need to get back to him. Uh, so, anyway. Anyway, in honor of the Jack the Ripper theme of the longest TSL ever, that was a four-hour show, which of the two following iconic never-identified murderers would you most want to investigate next? So Eric's read the book, and he's come to the same conclusion I have. And there's... Uh, uh, I, I found out about the theory because I saw a documentary called, I think it was Jack the Ripper, The Missing Evidence. And, and when the writer of this book that this documentary was based on and this is an this is an open and shut it's ironclad case it makes everything else look ridiculous it's like it's like you hear all the evidence that the and, and i wrote when i wrote chris i said your case reminds me very much of because he's getting a lot of pushback your case reminds me very much of the, the the shakespeare identity case i heard the case for uh shakespeare being written by um edward de vere 16th earl of oxford and it sounded very compelling to me and I thought for about a week, wow, what a gross, gross historical tragedy. Well, at least now, at least now justice has been done. Now I'm going to recognize that that Shakespeare was written not by William of Stratford, but by the by uh, Edward de Vere. And then I did something which I think most people should do, and that is maybe I should hear the other side of the argument. So then I read a book saying here's why Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, and after about seven pages, I realized, of course he did. In order to sell the De Vere theory, you have to leave out so much stuff. And there are plenty of blockers in that theory, impossible things. There's nothing blocking William of Stratford. So imagine my surprise when I found out that the works of William Shakespeare were written by a guy named William Shakespeare. And in an email to, um, to uh, Christer, who wrote this, this book, uh, uh, making the case for Jack the Ripper being um, Charles Lechmere, a, a carman uh, uh, and stuff. It's airtight. He's the only guy who's on the scene. His his route to and from work is where all the murders happen on that line within ten five ten yards of his of his nightly walk. So um, 
it's just excellent, and and the documentary's really good. When I wrote when I wrote him back, I said I have to tell you uh, when I saw the thing pop up in YouTube, the Jack the Ripper, the missing evidence. I I I, I very nearly passed on it. I remember having this reaction of oh, okay, another one. Here's another one of the special evidence that's going to show that you know it was. And I and I wrote to Christopher. I said I, he he says in his book that there's been 300 plus candidates for Jack the Ripper. And I said, okay, Christopher. I looked at you. I looked at the outline of the video before I watched. It. I thought, here's now he's going to make the case that Jack the Ripper was really Mark Twain or you know or Florence Nightingale or something like that. Uh, but no, he makes a rock solid case. So um, Eric says, would you rather know who the Zodiac or the Black Dahlia murder uh, is? Um, Zodiac Killer has not been found. The Black Dahlia murder is a uh, famous uh, case of a, a woman who was found cut in half, cleanly cut in half, and the body parts arranged, and she was a failed actress. And, uh, and you know, okay. Uh, the um, I, I, the my, my honest answer, Eric, is I don't really care about either one of those. Uh I think I I don't think I'm convinced I'm convinced that that this guy and and his friend in England uh, Edward um, I don't want to get his name wrong I will close with a story it's a personal story that he told me he didn't tell me to keep it confidential so I'm just going to keep it the Stratosphere Loan Show but like I said he told me about it and and of all of the Jack the Ripper story. This is the most amazing part. Give me one second. This is a true story, and it blew my mind. Um, so there's a channel out there, and it's got 2,000 subscribers, called The House of Lechmere. And uh, it's uh, with a guy out there... Uh, What's his name? Oh my God, I'm so sorry, uh, Ed. Uh, now I have to get it right because I don't want to. I don't want to embarrass him. Let me let me find his name here. Um, hang on a second. I'm gonna go back to the mail here. Prepare to have your minds blown. Now, I'm going to get most of this right. It's possible I get one or two details wrong, but in any event, let me get this guy's name. Where is he? Sorry. Come on. Ed... Snap or something. Where'd it go? I'm sorry about this, but this is something I just need to get right. Uh, Edward Stowe. Okay, so this is Edward Stowe's channel uh, called The House of Lechmere. It's a YouTube channel. And Edward Stowe is a, a British researcher. So let me let me tell you the, the, the story. This will be our, our outro for the night. So 
people have been working on the Jack the Ripper case since Jack the Ripper. And, um, and Christopher had been researching it. He's, uh, I think he's Danish, he's Scandinavian, um, might be Swedish. Uh, he, um, he'd been researching it for a long time. So here's, here's the, the backstory. One person was the first person to discover Polly Nichols, the first of the canonical um, murders. There was a witness there who was the first person to discover it, and that witness disappeared into history. And once he started looking at this person, it got more and more suspicious. So this, this character's name in the inquest was named uh, Charles Cross. And they went looking for Charles Cross. Researchers spent the last hundred years trying to find Charles Cross because he was the only person who was over a victim when the police arrived, or when it technically when another witness arrived. So if we can find out who Charles Cross is, we can, um, we can maybe figure out who this guy was. But they couldn't find anything on Charles Cross. Nothing. There was nothing on Charles Cross. So hold on to your hats here. Uh, hang on one second. One last little note here. Sorry. So, okay, so Edward Stowe is working on this, and Edward Stowe has a researcher, a woman, and these two haven't met each other yet, but they're both, they're both interested in this character, Charles Cross. So in England, you've got, uh, in London, you've got Edward Stowe and his, and this woman friend of his who's a researcher. I should get her name to you. I think that'd be the right thing to do. Um, Her name was Sue. Okay, with me so far? All right, here we go. This is, this is pretty mind-blowing. So Edward and Sue have been working on who is Charles Cross because they know that if they can find out who Charles Cross is, they can maybe get this down because he's the only guy who's been reported at the scene. He just disappeared. So they'd gotten to know each other. They'd been in London and they'd done the tour and they, you know, and they're both got the same interest in the same suspect. So they split up, go back to their homes. Some time passes, maybe a year or two or, or more. And some third-party researcher discovers that Charles Cross was a pseudonym used by a guy named Charles Lechmere. And Lechmere has a hundred, literally a hundred signatures. His record goes back all the way. And they find out that Lechmere lived at this location, which was along the route. And, and every single thing of the thing makes perfect sense that it was Charles Lechmere. And we couldn't find him for a hundred and whatever years because he'd gone by a pseudonym and, and we didn't know what it was. But somebody figured out it was Charles Lechmere. They found an address that Charles Cross had listed. And it turns out a guy named Charles Lechmere listed there. And, and, and so anyway, they found him. Listen to this though. So, Christopher gets on the phone and calls Edward Stowe. He says, Edward, you won't believe this. We found, we found out who Charles Cross is. His real name is Lechmere. And Edward says, okay. And then uh, Edward calls his co-researcher named Sue, gets her on the phone. He says, Sue, we've, we've had the breakthrough we've been waiting for our entire career. Okay, we know who Charles Cross is. She says, really? What's his last name? And it says, his last name is Lechmere. And Sue says, that's my last name. 
He says, yes, I know. The researcher who'd been working with Edward Stowe, trying to find the identity of Jack the Ripper, was Jack the Ripper's great-granddaughter. What do you think about that? So, Christer comes over to London, and Christer says, and Ed Stowe says, hey, uh, hey, uh, Christer, got something to show you. So the three of them get together again in a pub, and Sue says, uh, uh, Christer, got something you might be interested in. Yeah, what's this? She says, it's just a family album with me. Uh, so this is me as a kid, and this is, this is my dad, and uh, this is my dad with his dad, and here's a picture of my dad's dad. And my dad's dad is Charles Lechmere. Here's a photograph of Jack the Ripper. And when Christopher told me the story in the email, he said, like all this sound in the room, because I asked him, what would, how did you feel after researching for 30 years? How did you feel when you finally saw a photograph of this guy? And so he told me this story. And, um, and all of this stuff just, he said the, the room just faded away. He just kind of went into this kind of almost like a trance. You know, when we, and we, we talked about this, and he said, I don't know what to ascribe this to. And I said, I, I, I know exactly where you are with this. My head tells me it's a coincidence. My heart tells me that it's not. And I said, you know, I don't know how else to describe this. I'll just take a shot at it. Um, I said, maybe, maybe, we know when we look at the at the quantum universe that everything is probabilities. It's all just dice rolls, trillions of them at any given instant, right? Maybe justice was trying to find its way through this labyrinth of, of, of dice rolls of randomness and, and found a pathway through all of these possible pachinko ball outcomes and found and, and and the force of justice and, and good found its way to the truth, found its way to get out. It's about the best um, it's about the best uh, explanation I can come up with because it seems like a heck of a coincidence really. but but can you imagine? I mean I, I told you what what um, Christer thought and I'm sure, um, I'm sure Ed had a, a feeling about it, but how, what do you what do you do if you've been working on this problem for 20 years, and you get a phone call and you find out we found the, the found the guy's last name? Yeah, what was it? it was, his last name was Whittle. Really? Wow, that's a coincidence. Wait a minute. My great grandfather was named Charles Whittle. And find out it's true. And then uh, here's a picture in my family album that I've been looking at on and off. It's hundreds of pictures or whatever. And it's like, oh, this old guy here is your great-great-grandfather. Oh, well, that was nice to know. Yeah. yeah. We happen to catch the picture of the guy you've been searching for. And the guy you've been searching for, not only do you have his name, his face has been in your family album on your dresser counter for the last 20 years. While you've been searching every archive in the world, every possible archive to find out who this Charles Cross is, and it turned out that his name and frickin' photograph was in your bedroom the whole time. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that's amazing. 
And Eric says, are these personal intrigues why Jack the Ripper captures the imagination so much more than Zodiac or the Dahlia murder? Yes. Yes. Jack the, and Jack the Ripper didn't just kill five people. He was also the Thames uh, torso murderer. He probably killed at least 11 and might have gone on doing it for quite a long time. But in any event, he makes a very good case for that too. It was airtight as far as I'm concerned. But um, these are the kind of things that really have to ask, really leave you asking some very hard questions. We talked about this a couple episodes on the unlikeliness of life on Earth and, and probability and chance and stuff. Yes, it is obviously it's possible that this is a coincidence. No question about that. Uh, but... It's a, it's a, it's such a long shot that you really start having to ask yourself: Is this, in fact, the most likely, you know, explanation? And I never, I never followed up with him about it. And and I, I certainly hope he he doesn't have a problem with me telling it. Like I said, there was nothing in there that that he said you need to keep this under your hat. But it it made me realize: Well, why didn't you put this in the documentary? I didn't ask him this. I'm just asking it out loud now. This is the first thought I had when I when I saw it. And I don't know the answer to why you didn't put it in the book or the documentary, but I suspect, I suspect the reason is because if he had, no one would have believed him. No one would have believed his entire case because of that. They, 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 they would just say, it's, okay, okay, so now we get it, right? So, so this is a kind of plan for you to make the case for this guy who's this researcher's uh, great-great-grandfather. Uh, I suspect that's why I didn't. And, I, and personally, I think he's made exactly the right decision. But of all the things about Jack the Ripper, and, and I know a lot of things about Jack the Ripper, uh, that is by far the most astonishing. It's funny how, um, how history goes downstream, how one little rock in a river can you know, divide the river downstream if it's in, in the right place. When the first of these... Um, dismembered bodies or, or mutilated bodies were found, one of the, I think it was one of the police officers said, whoever did this has, has didn't just hack this body up. They, they have some, some, they have some very deep anatomical knowledge. Maybe it was a doctor or something. And at that instant, this is my speculation, but at that instant, something went click. And what went click was, and this I did tell him, the reason that the Ripperologists hate him so much and are trying to pull him down was because he showed that Jack the Ripper was a working man. He was a, 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 a delivery guy. And for a hundred and some years now, 140 years now, people have been sitting in their studies and libraries trying to figure out who this person was. And when that first report said he was likely a doctor, Every image of Jack the Ripper downstream of that one offhanded comment shows Jack the Ripper as a gentleman. Every picture you've ever seen of Jack the Ripper is a tall man with a top hat, cape, medical bag, and a knife. And all of this comes downstream from one policeman saying uh, uh, he, had, he certainly had some kind of anatomical knowledge uh, probably a doctor. If he'd said probably a butcher, he'd be closer to truth because doctors don't dismember people as a general rule. What he was really looking for was this, they would say that these joints had been expertly severed. That somebody really knew what they were doing, just made these right cuts and cut the organ out with one stroke, that kind of thing. And so, and so if he'd said a butcher, we might have caught Jack the Ripper 
immediately, because this guy was delivering meat, among other things. Uh, but he said a doctor. And so everybody's head went to gentlemen. And we know what gentlemen look like. And so we started looking at gentlemen, royal family, and all of these other people, and all these other suspects, right? Okay. Um, and now we're on the thing. I said to, to Krister, I said, what you're really experiencing here is not just that you've shot down their meal ticket because they believe it's this guy or that guy or whatever. You have done something. This, once again, is exactly, precisely the same dynamic as the Shakespeare case. The people who are worshipers of Shakespeare as an artist could not accept the fact that this kind of genius could come from a working man. They couldn't accept it, right? William Shakespeare was known to be an astute businessman who, who, who took such good care of his money that he was one of the partners in building the Globe Theater. He was the only person in the entire company who knew what he was doing with money. He, was, he had been a, a, a merchant and a trader and all these other things. He, he was good with money. And, and the idea that a working man wrote this stuff for money was emotionally unacceptable to the intellectuals who've been so obsessed with Shakespeare as a, as a trans, transcendental being. So it had to be Francis Bacon or it had to be uh, the, the 16th Earl of Oxford because only an aristocrat could write something this profound. There is the elitism that's built into all of the cases of people who try to make the case that Shakespeare didn't write it. How, how could it be Shakespeare? He was an, he was a, William of Stratford was a, he, he, he was a wool merchant and he, and he, and he, and he, you're saying he wrote this for money? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. He wrote it for money. Yes, it's his job. It's what he did for a living. How could he possibly know about, about pirates in Italy and stuff? Well, because he would listen to sailors talking and he read books on Italy. Well, he couldn't have just come up from his imagination. Yeah, actually, could have. So, so, they, so it was the elitism that took them off of the obvious case and started trying to find somebody who had the emotional weight necessary to be Shakespeare. It's exactly what happened with with the um, with the Jack the Ripper case. When I wrote back to Christopher about this, I said, "These people are angry at you because you have shown them that the person they've spent 140 years looking for was just a regular murderer and not." a criminal mastermind who buried the clues to his identity so deeply that only the smartest people could figure him out. That's what Ripperology is all about. That's what the establishment is all about. This belief that Jack the Ripper was a gentleman and a, and a criminal genius. He was Moriarty. This is exactly how they feel. He was Moriarty. He's a mastermind. He just disappeared into the night. Nobody could find him. Nobody knew. How come nobody saw him? Well, because because they were looking at the postman always rings, rings twice, right? It was the butler. It was, they, they didn't find him because, because he was in plain sight. It's obvious. It was just another person on the street. But, but what's, what's driving the emotional hatred towards Christer and his theory is that, no, he wasn't a criminal mastermind who, who is going to validate your intelligence because you are the person who figured out the fact that if you take the first letter of all of the addresses of the prostitutes and then you multiply it times pi, you, you, you know, that's, that's what you poke the hole in. You, you poke the hole in their elitism, and they don't like it. So there you go. Uh,
But these are these are the true life stories that just fascinate me. I just can't get enough of them. Um, so, uh, flashing blue light looks just like my computer. Bill, do I have a Corsair computer? Oh uh, no, um, I, I know. It took me a second to figure out what you're talking about. Uh, no, it's not a Corsair computer. Uh, I have and and this studio I put in in 2014. So I've been here almost 10 years. And all of these pictures have LEDs on the background. And I would leave them on at night, and I'd just go home and come out. And, and imagine my surprise over the course of eight years where uh, some of them started burning out. So now the studio needs a major revamp. I'm going to have to replace some of these things. Uh, and, and all the controllers are dead. So what you're seeing is I have two pieces of artwork back up there, acrylic artwork. And, um, and they're science fiction covers. And I've got the uh, LEDs in the background, and and uh, I had the wrong controller, and the wrong controller sent it a signal that it wasn't used to, so it just does that. And now we've solved two enormous mysteries in the space of a mere 10 minutes. The, the, the crazy, complicated story of Jack the Ripper, and also we've solved the, the, the ongoing mystery of what is that flashing blue light in the background over Bill's, uh, well, appears to be his left ear. There you go. All right. Um, yeah, and three pieces of artwork. I yeah, I love this Star Trek vector. It's my favorite thing. That's a, that. There's something about that shape. I don't know what it is, but that shape. I, I just had an insight. This is the last thing I'll. I haven't. It sure can't be over because I haven't said this is the last thing I'll say yet. Look at the lines on the vector. Okay. Now, the only other thing I've ever seen that had that kind of aesthetic curve to it that kind of compound curve to it. Only other thing I've ever seen that I thought was as beautiful as the Star Trek vector is the shape of the Jupiter 2. The Jupiter 2 from Lost in Space is transcendentally beautiful. It's just transcendentally beautiful vehicle. It's a it's a compound curve it's a, it's it's like the it's like the step pyramid the the, the, the pyramid that they were building at a steep angle and they realized it's going to collapse so they they flattened it out. It's got a it's got a curve that comes down to here and then it comes down to another curve and then it's got like a, a, a round bowl underneath. And the set that they use is just a section of a cone, but the but the actual model, which I will show you, is amazing. And I was thinking about this not too long ago. Um, thinking about, well, Bill, if you could have any science fiction uh, vehicle in history, anything, what would you take? And, oh, I'd take the Enterprise from the movies. Definitely take the movie Enterprise. Wait, you know what? On second thought, you know what? I think I'll take, I think I'll take this because if I had FU money, and I'd like to, uh, I would like to build a life-size version of uh, this thing. Here's it. It doesn't like that. Hang on. I'll do that. And then we do this. Wow, that's a tiny little image. Tiny little image. That's just stunning. Um, there's a, here it is from the show. Oh, here's, a, here's a better angle. Actually, hang on. So this little puppy um, was interstellar capable. It just was gorgeous, gorgeous. 
which one do I want? And like so much, this is a computer rendering of it. It's a 3D rendering of it, but this is the shape of it, basically. Oh, come on, stop it. Here you go. That's fantastic. Look at the look at the lines on that. You see what I mean? It's got there's something about the Star Trek vector on that. But if I could have anything, in, if I had fu money, I would out back somewhere. I would build this thing, and I would occasionally uh, stay in it. Be it'd be my treehouse. I'm not expecting it to fly. That's too much to ask for. But I would I would love to live in that thing. Just you know, I'm sure Natasha would feel about it. But I think that would be cool. Uh, I just, I just love it. I just think that's a fantastically good-looking thing. Um, so there you go. They found the, um, the, the, this picture. That's the the hero model of the Jupiter two, and uh, it was found. Somebody bought it at auction for like I don't know, twenty bucks or fifty bucks. It was completely destroyed, and and then a guy restored it to to new and he had to do a lot of research to get the silver right and so on and um and the same thing happened to the robot the actual robot they found in a in a warehouse and it was just rotting away and they restored it and by the way that's a good uh, thing to end on because if you can do that to a, a, a fiberglass and plastic model and if you can do it to a rusted out old uh, ford if you can restore something to better than its original quality because of our newer materials. If you can do it to those things, you can do it to a country too. The show is made possible by the um, members at BillWhittle.com who, uh, who part with some money to keep these shows coming and for whom we are eternally grateful. Hey, look at that. Three and a half hours up. Uh, yeah. Getting, getting a little longer here. So we'll split these into two and we'll get we'll get more questions next time. For uh, So we'll do the... Um, We'll do the new show on Monday at 6 o'clock uh, Pacific, 9 Eastern, intermediate times as necessary. And uh, and I will see you then. So until then, uh, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time right here on the Stratosphere Lounge.